The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Good talk watches. We can talk anything. You know, I have a, 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 a Instagram influencer watch account. Do you really? Yeah, it's got like 22,000 followers. What's it called? It's called Watch the Ramen. It's where I combine my love of watches and my love of Japanese ramen into one Instagram <laughs> account. It's never been done before. Okay? That's, that's an interesting combination. And that's what a... I do is I take pictures of my watches and I review the watches and the ramen together. Oh. And I pair them, I mean, to some extent. It's kind of a tongue in There cheek. you are. Boom. Look at that. Oh, that's hilarious. You get the fucking watch of a the spoon. That's the, that's the Seiko version of your moon watch. Oh, wow. That's so, a beautiful watch. The story is... I don't know if you're. Are you running? Are you taping this? Yeah. This is good shit. Okay. The story is that Admiral Pogue, on his moon mission, was supposed to take the first chronograph into space, and the Omega people had a branding agreement with NASA, so they gave him an Omega moon watch, oh. and then he didn't like it. He he trusted his old uh, Seiko. That's what he trusted. So he took this watch in his pocket, which was his. And this is not the same exact watch, obviously. It's a a, a, a version of a recreation. recreation of it. And uh, he took off his Omega once he got in, into space, and he put on his his Seiko chro- uh, chronograph, and which was then forever called a Pogue. So this was actually the first chronograph worn in space, not the Omega one, despite oh, what you may have. Heard. That was fake news. Fake and news. And now that's considered a a Pogue. So is that a quartz watch? Is that? Oh uh, no, that's an automatic watch. It's uh, an automatic, but that, I thought that was the problem with the watch in space. Was that with no gravity, that the moving of the gears wouldn't be the Admiral, same? Admiral Pogue would dare to disagree with you because he just did it and that was like 1973 maybe he didn't give a fuck about the time he just loved that watch no no he needed it to time the the whole point was that he needed it to time the bursts so that right. he wouldn't incinerate himself in the atmosphere oh and he didn't trust the omega he knew how to use his watch oh i see. so he was like i'll i'll take this watch for the pictures but then i'm gonna get my old trusty seiko out of my pocket because i can't die on this mission right now and I oh trust wow my seiko. and that's obviously not as prestigious of a watch but now it's like amongst watch freaks and geeks considered to be like one of the ones you want to collect. That's so weird because a watch expert was explaining to me the reason why the moon watch from um, from Omega is a wind-up is because you can't rely on gravity because the automatic movements, you know, there's these little things and they swing back and forth depending upon, like, your I watch. Know. I don't know if that guy was full of shit or, 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 but I'm, like, the, the, the Admiral Pogue is... The watch is called the Pogue for a reason. Right, you know? right, right. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. So that's a weird combination, though. Well, ramen and why didn't you just have two separate accounts? Well, because that has been done before. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever combined reviewing ramen restaurants and reviewing watches together and then pairing them appropriately in some, most cases. No, the real reason is because, you know, I, as a, a lonely reporter for 17 years traveling back and forth to Japan and Asia, I just got super into the food scene, especially in Tokyo. I used to live in Tokyo. I worked for the Japanese newspaper there. I used to teach English there for Did a couple really? of years. In Shin, Yokohama, Japan. I was 23, fresh out of college. Just oh, wow. living my best life in like an apartment the size of this table. I had like one burner. and then, But I, I loved it. And then I, as I got older, I started getting into watches. And then my Instagram was like, all watches and ramen. My wife was like, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> She's like, can you just stop put it, posting that? And I'm like, oh, I'll just make it its own thing. And then people started to like it. And in the ramen community, people started to learn about watches. And in the watch community, people started to learn about ramen. And communities were brought together. Way to go, dude. People seem to like it. Now we're going to have a ton more followers. Da- yeah, for sure. David Lee Roth moved to Japan for a bit. Like, while he was... I get. I think. Have you been pl- there? 
Yes, I have. It's amazing, right? Yeah, I've only been there once for the UFC, but I really enjoyed it. I was there for a couple of days. I didn't get to see much, but it. we we went to some great sushi restaurants and got got a chance to. And the the fight fans there are really. Oh yeah. It's really interesting because they're super super polite. <laughs> and they're they're really quiet, and then when something happens, like they applaud, like a guard pass or something that's right. like real technical. They they all applaud. They get very excited yeah, about I, it. I once went to a Slipknot festival, not Fest Tokyo, because my brother-in-law is the drummer for Slipknot, Jay Weinberg, and so he he I'd never been to a Slipknot concert before, so we just went, and twenty-five thousand Japanese fans, Slipknot fans, in rows, standing politely, perfect rows, <laughs> and then the song come on, and they'd be like. You know, doing this, and then the, the the song would come up, and they'd say, politely wait for the next song. It was hilarious. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's that's a different a, culture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really different. Like alien. Well, that's, well, I wouldn't use that word, but, you know. I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, in like, it's so different from what we are here in America with the obnoxious people yeah. and, I mean, you know, to, to be honest, I the way people are on the street in particular. They're so polite, and everyone's so, it's, that's it's one very way to orderly. Look at it. That's one way to look at it. I yeah. mean, you know, I wasn't planning to analyze the Japanese psyche right now, but let me take a shot at it. Um, you know, there's two things that I think really struck me about Japan. One is that, you know, we have like a 200-year history. They've got a 5,000-year history, okay? Mm, yeah. So for that, for them, our history is like a, a, a snap, right? So they have things that they are doing that they have brought from their ancient times that they totally forgot why, okay? They have no idea why they're doing all these things. Like the tea ceremony takes four hours and the sumo rules are as such and the food is cooked this way. And the tradition itself is a beautiful thing, but it's long detached from any sort of rationality. Mm. Judaism is like this, right? You mm. know, like, why don't you eat this or that? I don't know, that's how we always are doing it. And the other thing is that, you know, they, it, because it's so an island, it's, it's like an island in many more ways than one and in a sense, They've been able to develop with less influence, not zero influence, but less influence from the right. outside world. So they've developed in a way that's unique to them that has little to do with what we were doing in 5,000 years ago. And th what that taught them is that they had need to rely on each other on this uh, you know, island, which is basically 90% mountains. They don't really grow anything. They're really uh, like little rice patches that are like this big and you know, there's no oil. So they had to come together as a community. And it's a very Confucian kind of thing where you focus on you know, the consensus and that it, uh, shows itself in their politics and in their society. And basically, when you have a, a, a country that operates that by consensus, that can have very good, uh, bad outcomes like World War II when the, you know, like, oh, the consensus is we got to attack everybody. Or it can have very good outcomes like, oh, the consensus is we all better wear masks and nobody should get corona. So, you know, it could go either way, but it's just they, they see each other as, as a community and as a family and they act as such. And that's... that's there is a Confucius element to that, but there's also sort of like a, a community element to that, that. That, again, I like for the most part, but also can get in the way sometimes if you just want to buck the system or do something interesting. Yeah, they also have an ancient system of discipline and respect sure. that you know comes from you know feudal Japan and also just martial arts in general. Like they're known for being the birthplace of many styles of martial arts, and also where many styles of martial arts that maybe came from China were refined. And changed yeah. in, in in Japan. Well, you know more about that than me, but like I, you know, I do remember going to a Pride show in in like 2002. Do you remember Pride? Sure, and yeah. It was crazy, man. I mean, I, I know tell people Pride it was uh, the competitor to the UFC in the early 2000s, and yeah, they had enormous events, like huge events, like 80,000 yeah. people, mm -hmm. Saitama Super Arena, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and what I that was the first time that I really saw up close all these different styles being 
posed against each other. Yeah. You, know, you saw, like, oh, who could really fight? You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. No, they did it in a very unique way in Japan. They really did. And you know, uh, it was the envy of the martial arts world because of the fact that they did have. And it's what's strange is that, like, it went away. That's what's really weird. Yeah, man. I mean, they had the biggest martial arts scene in terms of like the ability to have 90,000 people in a super arena. That wasn't a, at the time, America was not like that. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even that popular in America at the same time. It wasn't really popular in America until 2005 when The Ultimate Fighter was on television on Spike TV and the finals between Stefan Bonner and uh, Forrest Griffin became this huge event because it was just like this wild fight that was just perfect timing and the worlds collided in this perfect way and then it became this, uh, this emerging sport. But in Japan, it was already huge. Yeah, I always think of Japan as going like five years into the future. You know what I mean? Yes. It's, like, it's like the near future, you know, and and it's but funny. an orderly version of the future. Like not- yeah, uh, it's a it's a wonderful country. The people are, uh, you know, they can seem cold, but they're not. They're very warm. They're just very, you know, uh, uh, particular about the way that they interact, and they yeah. would appreciate if you go to their country that you learn some of these things, which I tried to do, endeavor to do in my two years of living there. I don't think I really got to the bottom of it. I know that when my parents showed up, they did not follow any of the practices. They were not, you know, like my dad's like eating on the train. I'm like, Dad, you can't do that. He's like, why? I don't care. I'm gonna. I got a bag of chips. I'm gonna eat them. You know, stuff like that. Like you. Right. So it takes a while to learn, but if you do the work and you learn the language, and I, again, I'm like what they call functionally illiterate. Like I can speak and understand Japanese, but I can't read or write anything. Right. Well, that's cool though that you could speak it just to, to get around to communicate with people. Yeah. And so it, they they super appreciate that. And Japan's actually a very diverse place in 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 a sense in that if you go west to Kyoto and then you keep going to Kyushu or you go north to uh, Sapporo, you will find crazy, you know, nuances and differences in the culture and the food and the people there uh, that will blow your mind. And you know, I, I, you know, I've been, uh, I started my career working for the Japanese newspaper, the Asahi Shinbun, in their DC wow. office. That's how you started as a journalist. I am, a, I am a failed Japan scholar. <laughs> I'm this, like you're a failed kickboxer. I'm not failed, but you know what I mean. Like that, you didn't no, set out sure. to be like a. Yeah, uh, uh, I would. Uh, I would go with that. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I wanted to work in U.S.-Japan relations and eat ramen and travel back and forth and you know work at a think tank or something like that. And nobody wanted to hire me for that because you know <laughs> Japan's like one of those countries that's like basically okay. Like if you study a problem country like Russia or Iran or something like that, there's industry for that. There's money for yeah. that. You know, somebody wants to know about that. But you know, the Japan scholarship community is very small and. Uh, it's very hard to break into, and I, I'm not like one for schooling. You know what I mean? Like I, I like I, I graduated GW in four and a half years flat, and like that was it. Like I, there was no graduate school coming. <laughs> like it was just wasn't going to happen. I spent my time at GW working at the DC Improv. You know? Yeah. And which is a whole other story that you don't want to hear. But the, well, we'll get to that. Okay. We can, we can certainly. Get but anyway, to that. so I, I I found this country that I loved, and I wanted to spend time studying it. But uh, so the job that I found was working at the Japanese newspaper. It's called the Asahi Shinbun. It's like their New York Times. And uh, big bureau, lots of journalists. And if you're the Japanese journalist at the Washington Bureau of the biggest newspaper, you're the shit. You're, you're the cream of the crop, right? And so there I am, you know, 24 years old. I didn't know anything. But I spoke Japanese, so they hired me. And uh, they're like, go to the Pentagon. And I said, why? They said, you're the Pentagon reporter. I said, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> they're like, yeah, this is a true story. They said, go to the Pentagon. Donald Rumsfeld was the briefer, 2004. Wow. And they said... Uh, go early, sit in the front row. If he calls on you, ask him anything about Japan. It doesn't matter what he says. That's going to be news for us. So I said, okay. So I got there super early, and I had a notebook. It's a little bit smaller than this one, and I sat in the front row. And, you know, the things about to start. Rumsfeld, like, 
for people who don't remember, like there used to be these things called briefings, you know what I mean? Where like officials would like talk to us and tell us things, sorry, about what's going on in the government, you know, they don't really do that anymore. Like the briefings now are all crap. They're all bullshit. But most of them anyway. But back then Rumsfeld didn't care. He would tell you anything you wanted to know. He wanted you to know it. He wanted to spar with you. He loved it. You know, he lived for that kind of stuff. And so I sat in the front row and uh, Martha Raddatz from ABC, she's coming out of the bullpen, you know, two minutes before the thing starts. And she looks at me and she says, you're in my chair. And I said to her, uh, I don't see any names on the chairs. And she looks up the Wrangler and he says, yeah, uh, this isn't high school. We don't have assigned seats here. This is the Pentagon. And she's got to go sit in the back. Okay, so she's already pissed at me. Why did she think that she could just take your chair? Traditionally, I should have, out of respect, given the very famous senior producers the seats that they sit in. It's just the rule. It's just like a custom. But I didn't but know the that. Way, but saying it to you that way, you're she in was, my chair. Yeah. It, it, thing that I love Martha Rad. She's a very nice person, and she's a great journalist. But suffice to say, at that moment, I was just like, no, I'm not, I'm not moving. Okay. Uh, and so what did Rums she say to you? She's like, she's okay, I guess we'll go sit in the back. And then the thing starts, and Rumsfeld's doing his performance. Iraq this, insurgency that, where's Osama bin Laden? Is the insurgency stronger or weaker than it was yesterday? And he's like just he's just like the master of this stuff. Not that I'm not endorsing his policies, I'm just saying he yeah. is the best. So he calls on me randomly and I asked him something about Japan and his face lights up and he talks about the US Japan relationship for thirty five minutes. He drained oh. the entire press conference. Until the bell rang, all we were talking about was like Okinawa basing or whatever. You know, and the, and uh all the other reports were now they were super pissed because I had wasted their <laughs> chance to ask 20 more times, where's Osama bin Laden? Where's Osama bin Laden? We don't know. Where's Osama bin Laden? We still don't know. Where's Osama bin Laden? We still don't know. You know? And I went back to my bosses with a notebook full of Donald Rumsfeld talking about Japan. And it was a front page article in 7 million Japanese newspapers that I couldn't read. Wow. And uh, I have to this idea, to this day, I don't know what the article said, but I, you know, I got the quotes. Big score. And I was for like, you. what do I do now? They're like, do it again tomorrow. So for three years, I was Rumsfeld's foil in that room. And I didn't know if the fix was in until one time I didn't ask anything. And he stopped me in the hallway and I didn't even think he knew my name. And he said, Josh, what are you tired today? I could have used you in there. <laughs> And so I was, he was looking to just take away from with a all big, the with a big shit eating grin on his face. Oh wow! And that's when I knew the fix was in, right? And I was ah. like, okay. So me and Donald <laughs> Rumsfeld are making news in Japanese for three years, and my bosses think that I'm just like the best thing since sliced bread. That's hilarious. It ended in a two week trip to Guantanamo Bay. That is a a, a, a mind fuck story. I, I can't even get into right at this moment. But if you want to come back to it, I'll I'll do it. But, okay. But. Yeah. Anyway, eventually I, I had to get a job in like the American media because if you're like the white guy at the Japanese newspaper, there's no upward mobility for you. So again, I tried to get a bunch of Japan jobs, consulting jobs, think tank jobs, didn't get any. But I got a job working for a trade publication writing about the Pentagon because I knew how to cover the Pentagon. And then, I, you know, those Japanese journalists who I'd worked with, because, you know, people don't understand it's like, Young journalists these days get thrown onto the heap, right? There's no training. Like maybe you went to like – if you went to journalism school, that's a great leg up. I didn't do that. You know what I mean? So usually you have to be like the most aggressive or the most clever and some, or you join a team. And if you join a team, you get the welfare of that political team and that can promote you through your career. But I didn't have any of that. But I had something that these people didn't have, which is I was trained by these top, top, top Japanese journalists who taught me the things that they never teach, which are like how to source, how to dig – you know, how to pour through documents, how to use data, how to understand budgets, how to understand how these agencies work on the inside. And that takes years and years and years to learn. That's the, 
the the work of covering the government that you know a lot of people still do, but not as much as they used to. And I used those skills to break stories. So I became a scoop master, and I just started breaking stories. And the more I broke stories, the more better jobs I got. I went to Federal Computer Week magazine, Congressional Quarterly, Foreign Policy magazine. I covered the State Department. Then I covered uh, uh, Daily Beast, then Bloomberg View, and now the Washington Post. And I also have a side gig at CNN. I'm a, a part-time contributor there. What a weird way to launch your career. That's I fell pretty... ass backwards into journalism. <laughs> my quest to eat more ramen. That's that's the sad truth of the matter. And when did you get out of Japan? Like, how long were you there for? I was there for a year. I worked for the Japanese newspaper in D.C. Oh, so. okay. So you worked for them through America. Exactly. Yeah. I worked in their Washington bureau. Oh. Like, they've got a bunch of Japanese journalists who don't speak English, and they need some American kids to, like, run around and interview people. To help, you know, we were like a team. I was more Did of a, you consider learning the language in terms of like how to write and read? I tried. I just, I, I'm not a good student. <laughs> As my transcripts will bear out. All right. I was like, I, I think I was like eight when I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want it. I don't want someone at the front of the room telling me what's what. You know right. what I mean? I just want to, I want to figure it out for myself. And, you know, so that led to like a few bad life choices in terms of like, Studying for exams when I was actually probably at the improv, you know, not sober. And then, you know, basically my your options limit. <laughs> right. Um, no, but I mean, listen, again, you know, I think if I was meant to become a U.S. Japan scholar, I, I probably uh, that would have been one thing. I think things happened for a reason. And, you know, that's life, man. You know, would you have predicted 20 years ago that you'd be sitting here right now? Like you'd never have thought of that. You right. Just, you, ju- you just you. You try to take the opportunities where you can. You try to be authentic. And when those two things interact, you take a step. And sometimes that step leads you to a good place. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I don't plan anything. I just right? keep I mean, going. You know, that's, yeah. that's like, it's not a, it's, this is not advice. This is not a good way to go through yeah. life. But it, it just happened is. to work out. You're wrong. I mean, you're right. It's not advice, but it is advice. Like, it's not advice it's in not the traditional everybody. sense. Yeah, no, it's not for everybody. But it is advice in the sense that, like, if someone like identifies with you, like that guy's kind of like me, like it will it will work. Cause no, don't do what I did. <laughs> Study, get good grades. Don't do what go you to grad did school. specifically, right. but do what you did in terms of like you know this is what you were interested in, and you had passion right. and drive, and right. it does apply to everything. Uh, yeah. I think if you can find the thing that you love to do, yes. and you can find someone to pay you for it, then do that. You know what I mean? And that's that was quite lucky because, again, I never thought of being a journalist until I was one. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, who's a fabulous journalist for PBS NewsHour, Allie Rogan, uh, she started interning in journalism. She worked on it in college. She worked at NBC. She worked at ABC. This is what she wanted to do. And, you know, in the end, I think in part for that reason also because you know, she looks better on TV than me, she's going to end up being a lot more successful than I am. But I'm not. I'm, I'm cool with that. I love that, actually. And what I, you know, I just want to sort of work in this business, have a career, and ha- make a living. And at the point where doing what I love and, you know, and uh, and and getting people to pay me for it doesn't work out, I'll do something else. Like I'm not, uh, you know, uh, it's not a, it's not a, an end for me. It's just a means. It's a it's a gig. It's a thing that you enjoy doing. It's a thing that I've gotten, I think, kind of good at over 17 years of doing it, and I don't have any other skills, so I'm kind of stuck in a way. But <laughs> If I get canceled after, if I say like, "fuck a bee" on TV instead of "huckabee" or something like that, then I'll go get a real estate license or whatever. Like I, I don't, you know, I don't. It, right. Like it, it's not gonna, it's not gonna crush my soul if I. Don't. But on the other hand, I would like to continue my career in journalism, at least for the, you know, not get canceled and. How caffeinated are you right now? A you, one, I, I don't want to say. I mean, it seems like this is actually just actually how I am all the time. 
my wife will attest to that. But <sighs> yes, there's been a couple cups of coffee. Yeah, that black rifle is strong. It's good stuff. Um, no, black this is fun, coffee. man. This yeah, is... no, it's fun to have you here, man. I, fe- I became aware of you because uh, you got in a squabble with a comedian where someone punched Dan, you. Dan Nynan. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I forget what happened. I, I forget how I found out about it. Maybe because we share a similar last name. Is that is that when someone was like, hey, do you know this guy who got punched I by Dan I think so. I forget what it was. you know the was? true story of that incident has never been told? The true story. The true story. Mm-hmm. I've been waiting 10 years to tell this story. Feel free. Okay. Now, <laughs> here's the thing. Okay. Again, we're not, you know, so I worked in the TC Improv right. in, in 1999 as a GW junior, right? It was great. I was just like- What's a GW junior? George Washington University. Oh. It's like- Two blocks from the Emperor, all right? Oh, okay. I needed beer money. They needed waiters. Simple as that. I'll never forget. I walked in. There's a guy named John. Did you ever play a DC Improv? Yes. You remember a guy named John X? I don't. I only played it once. Okay. And it was quite a while ago. Anyway, there's this manager named Allison Jaffe, who's the owner now, was the host then. And uh, Mike Barbiglia was a host. I worked with him. Mike worked, Barbiglia? The, yeah. the comic? Yeah, yeah. He was he was at Georgetown when I was at GW. We're about oh, he was the host age. of the show. No, no. He was literally the host that takes you to your seat and tells you. That's what you I was thinking napkin. you said. That's what he was. Oh, wow. I That's was a crazy. waiter, and he was the guy who takes your ticket and shows you to your seat because he was trying to break into the business. Oh. And he uh, he always had notebooks. He was always writing. Like He was a very smart guy, as you know. He was a very like, yeah. cerebral comic. And uh, but we were friendly, you know, and, and you know, uh, um, you know, I didn't care. I wasn't trying to break into stand up comedy. I just wanted, you know, weed money. And, and so I was like trying to work there. But I got to hang out with all my stars, all my favorite stars. So it was like, you know, all the the living color guys, David Allen Greer would always come through. Keenan Ivory Wayne's uh, um, a lot of the like um, uh, Dave Attell was a big one. Dave Chappelle. Mm lived in D.C. at the time. Well, he didn't live in D.C. at the time, but his mom lived there, and that was, like, his hometown. So he would do these, like, endless four-hour sets where he would try out all this new shit, and we would just sit there, no full house. No one would ever leave. You never saw anybody, you know, perform like that, you know? And uh, so it was just a great job. I eventually got fired. It's a separate story. (laughs) (laughs) Neither here nor there. Water under the bridge. But anyway, I stayed in touch with them, and Allison, who was the host, she became the owner, and, uh, you know, and so I kept in touch with her, and I would go to, the, every year they had this thing called the Celebrity DC Comedy Contest. It was like a charity event, which actually, like, turned out to be corrupt in the end. Because, really? Yeah, the guy who was running it was like, I'm the charity, <laughs> the charity's never got any money. That's oh, a, that, no. Now he's probably going to sue me, but the point is that <laughs> it's true anyway. So anyways, they, they, would have, they would have, a like, Joe Lieberman would get up and do, like, Six minutes of blue stand up. There was pretty funny, you know. Grover Norquist was always doing. That was it. back when he was blue. Is uh, he red I, now? See, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Got it. I see what you did there. Yeah. So, uh, very punny. Blue meaning dirty. Yeah, like like sad right. comedy. You not know? like oh not, blue, not like, like yeah. sad. Like he was working blue. Yeah. But you, you is that is that not a, a stand up term? Did I use that? Blue term? is dirty. Oh yeah, blue that too. Yeah, but that's what blue stands for. Like, do you work blue? It's uh, a weird. It's very obscure. You never hear it anymore. But huh. that's what it used to be back in like the nineties, I huh. guess. Like he works blue. Okay, like, so I massacred about, that. I massacred that. No, but you just you did it in a sense of like he would say depressing shit. He was. It was like dark. Dark. It was dark. Oh, he, okay. he did a lot of black comedy. Maybe it's black comedy. Is that right? Yeah. Anyway, no, we're getting off the subject. Black comedy is a very different thing. Can we get back on track with this story? Yes, we only got three can. hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wasting time. <laughs> Let's get back uh, on track. So anyway, Dan Nynan is the is the ringer. They paid him to be the ringer. You know, the one paid guy who gets paid. Everyone else is doing it for okay. charities. Okay. 
And if you don't know who Dan Ninen is out there, he he was first made famous because he he's like the Silicon Valley tech guy who decided to toss it all and become a stand-up comedian because that was his true calling. And he would do all these corporate gigs and you know for these Silicon Silicon Valley companies. He made a bunch of money, performed for Obama. He got a little buzz. He bought four hundred thousand followers on Twitter. That was like one thing. And anyway, he was supposed to be this clean comic. He's like a I'm the clean comic that you can invite to your corporate event, right? It's not he's not like. Uh, playing over like you know trying to do comedy over like stripper music like you were packing the, you know what I mean like like he he's a corporate corporate guy so he wasn't doing road gigs he was doing he, he was just doing some of that sort but of mostly the mostly the the corporate, corporate conference yeah, stuff which right. is fine that's all well and good anyway his his act was just like it was it was crap right it was just like not funny and I was tweeting about it from my seat on the high tops in the back. And I was, to be fair, I was tweeting sarcastic stuff about all the comics, but the other ones are like journalists and politicians. They don't care. And because I worked there and because I was like using the club's uh, Twitter feed, uh, someone oh, showed it to me. you doing it through the DC Improv. I just tagged them. No, I just oh. tagged them. So the staff saw it. They're like, they showed it to him in the green room. And he comes to the back of the room. He says, are you Josh Rogan? I said, yes. He punches me in the face. And I was like, have you ever been sucker punched? I mean, you've been sucker punched. It's, it's, you're kind of shocked. You're like, did that just happen? Right. And there's like, a, by the way, there's like seven journalists who are there covering the thing. We're not covering the thing. We're just going for the free drinks. And uh, and they're all like, did that just happen? So I start tweeting, Dan Nina just punched me in the face. And then he starts like, you know, his jokes are terrible, like election, election, you know, like eight, eight, like a kind of like weirdly, vaguely problematic jokes for an Indian guy to make, right? And then uh, he... <laughs> He, he sees me tweeting about him, and he comes back and he swings at me again. He's like flailing. Again? Again. He hit me he twice. He comes back again. Yeah. So he doesn't think, I'm going to get arrested. I just punched a guy. Let me get the fuck out of here. No. no he, he wants to stop around. me from tweeting about it. Yeah. Mashable said I was the first person to ever live tweet my own assault. <laughs> True story. So anyway, so the, Allison, the owner, she calls the cops. They arrest him. Um, and, you know. Uh, it was a, it became a big story because of the seven journalists who were there to cover. They didn't want to cover Joe Lieberman's black, co- you know, whatever. This is a much better story. So they immediately there were seven art before he posted bail. There were seven articles about it, and then that became viral and that became a big thing. And the Taiwanese media made like a animation of my assault, like an animation depiction of it. Is that available online? Still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can pull that up right now. <laughs> it's it's hilarious. It's like it's not that long. They did a pretty good job with it. Uh, anyway, so then I was like, you know what? Okay, fine, it happened. It's like a little viral moment, you know, no big deal. I wasn't hurt or anything. And then this, I want to use my words carefully. Motherfucker? This, this sociopathic, violent hack starts lying on TV and radio. I never punched him. I never did this. He made it all up. What is this going on? And I'm a, I'm a columnist now, so I can tell you what I really, I'm like, a, I can say these. Like, at that time, I didn't want to get into a public... Thin, like I, I'm not allowed to do that, and he, he just, by the way, he pled guilty and did probation. Whatever, I didn't even care. Then through an intermediary, he called me and tried to bribe me to to pull the charges, like give me a bunch of money. How much? Uh, I think the number that I was quoted was ten grand. That's not enough. It's not that I'm, I'm not taking any bribe. Like I'm, what if it was I'm a like journalist, I can't take any five hundred grand to stop talking. I don't about. like where this conversation is going because mm. <laughs> every man have his price. I mean, everybody already knows about it. I, he just wanted to avoid the charge because I wrote on the charge, you know. I understand. So anyway, this guy is like, t- for years and years and years, telling lies about me in public, uh. and then he like 
just the story changes every time. He's like OJ. Like he in his mind he doesn't of believe course. he did it. You know what I mean? And he changes the story a lot. Yes. Right, but but like course. that's why I say there must be like I'm not a doctor. I'm not like, There's an issue. There's an issue. Some there. sort of pathology. And then I started meeting other comedians like Hassan Minaj who was like, Oh yeah, this guy's crazy. He gets into all these crazy email he's like uh, he's like do it he's very aggressive, he's harassing and this and that. And they're like, You better steer clear of him. Uh, and then uh you know, actually, the problem solved itself because uh, this article came out in 2017 about how he was totally lying about his age the whole time. He was like the millennial comic, but he was like 55. <laughs> Did you know this? No. I he didn't was, know. He was quoted. I, in, I didn't like, even he would, know who he, he was. All these, he was giving. This is a real example. He was giving uh, sex tips in Cosmopolitan as a 31 year old. You know, quoted on the record, but he was like 55 at the time. <laughs> so he's a fraudster. A fraudster. Okay, mm, yeah. a classic fraudster in the yeah. classic sense, and uh, now now I don't think he's worked since, so we might be you know piling onto him uh, cruelly. So in that sense, I would like to say that <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but you forced I love me. That you have to take into consideration cancel culture. No, I mean he's already been can- he was canceled yes, before. But you, you know have what to I mean? take into consideration it coming after you if you're piling on. I don't I don't want to be un- unduly punitive against Dan Nine. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bottom line is the true story has never been told until this moment, Joe Rogan. Well, I'm glad you told okay, the true story. Okay, and now I, I had to get that off the chest. Now let's talk about something real. Yeah. Well, um, that's that sounds like a great education, though, for a young guy to be working at a place like DC Improv because it's you, know, you got a chance to see so many great comics come through there. It's probably yeah. a really fun, Black, wild place to be. Yeah, no, I, it was just like, you know, and then we would go out drinking afterwards. Oh, you that's know what awesome. I mean? And like I, you know, we, there's this place called the Big Hunt in DC. Mm. So I record, and uh, you know, like, have you ever seen the show Insomniac? Yes. That's his life. That's exactly like I. I used to drink with Dave Attell at the Big Hunt. That was exactly what it, he's not. There's oh, no, listen, I know Dave very well. I've hung he's out one of my favorite. He's one of my favorite. Comedians. He's one of the greatest of all time. I agree. With he that. doesn't get nearly enough credit because he has zero intent to p- publicize himself or to get. He more doesn't want to play the game. But well, it's not just that. He's not interested in being famous. He doesn't huh. care. All he cares about is telling more, better jokes. I, he's one of my favorites, by far. Dude, last time I saw him, it's been a while, but I mean, other than the last time he did the podcast, I saw him at the improv. He showed up. I was doing a show at the LA improv. And uh, he's like, hey, can I, can I do some time? I'm like, fucking, of course, come on, man, get in there. And so he goes up, and uh, we were, it was only like at the end of the night, you know. It was probably like uh, 100 people in the room or so. And I'm telling you, man, it made me think, like, God, why isn't this guy more famous? Yeah. Like, he was, it was a late show because we had a 10 o'clock set or a 10 o'clock start. And I thought, you know, it was probably like 1230. So it was at the end of the show. And he's, he's up there and just so, he's just so good, man. Yeah. He's so tight and funny and loose and polished and, yeah. and trying out new shit and, when it doesn't go, it would the new shit doesn't go well. It's even funnier because right. he'll shit on himself and his jokes. And God, yeah. he's good. We used to listen to so his good. tapes all the time. But I remember just sitting there thinking, like, this is a shame that more people don't know how good this guy is. He should be selling out arenas all over the world. Like he really is yeah. that good. That's a, everyone else should go download his album. Yeah, yeah. But he wears the same fucking clothes yeah. every day. But there's a lot of guys. Cap, there's a lot of guys shirt. like that in, in, in your in your in the stand-up is. There's a lot yeah, of guys like he, that. Like Brian Regan. Okay. But Brian Regan's I love very Brian huge. Regan. He's is he huge. bigger than David Yeah, Tell? he's huge. Okay. Brian Regan does like still about Dennis Red Regan? Rocks. Uh, Dennis, Brian's brother. I don't know if Dennis is doing comedy anymore. But Dennis was a great comic. He used great to come comic. through, and yeah. I used to hang out with him. He I think always Dennis with... stopped doing comedy. Well, that's a that's a darn shame because he was yeah. really funny. He was very good. Uh, he yeah. always started with the same joke. He would always every set, same joke. He'd be like, 
you know, they say making the first million is the hardest. I'm finding that to be the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was always deadpan, and his brother yeah. was, like, way more. Goofy. Yeah. yeah. And Brian is, like, really, like, fun and silly. Yeah. And, and Jay Dennis. Moore was always great. Uh, Dave Chappelle was always great. Louis Black was always great. Uh, uh, Kathy Madigan. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. She, she was there a lot. Uh, Flip Orley did the hypnosis stuff all the time. Oh, isn't that wild? It works. It's, I, I became a, I never thought it worked, but I saw, I, I saw I, it work. There was a guy, um, these, like, Frank policy. Santos, in, in Boston that used to do it. We yeah. used to, comics would go and watch and go, this is crazy, but it is real. Yeah. It really can. There's a certain percentage of the population that can get up yeah. there and they can talk them into all kinds of crazy things. David Allen Greer, super nice guy. Real good guy. Tommy Davidson. Hmm. Pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> He's nice okay, me. can I tell you? I'll tell so you one crazy nice story, one, and then we got to talk about okay. China or something like okay, that. But sure, I'll tell you this sure, one crazy sure. story. <sighs> I should probably shouldn't tell this, but who cares? Then don't tell it. Okay. Was it about Tommy? No. Okay. So Kenny and Ivory Wayne's demanded like twenty five grand, or he wouldn't go on. They had to pay him out like the entire thing, and he was like, "I need it all in cash right now, or you have no shots." They had to like scramble and go get like twenty five thousand dollars in cash out of some vault somewhere. They didn't even know what to do. Like these were the, the types of things that went on. That's a crazy thing. Why did he need that money right away? He wanted to be paid up front in cash. I don't know. Cash is a weird thing to want. I want it. Oh, Bags of it. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Do you have any? No, I but uh, I went to a place once yes, that sells cars and um, Offset. He's, that's the dude who's married to Cardi B, right? Was. Was. He was there with a dude, and the dude had like this uh, designer bag mm -hmm. filled with cash. Nice. And they were looking at like Lamborghinis and shit. Yeah. I was like, damn, this is the rap yeah. world. Yeah. IRS will come get you, though. Well, I don't think it wasn't, it wasn't that he wasn't paying taxes. Is that... No, listen, the place that sells the cars is very legit. Like You mm. have to pay taxes. They, they're not fucking around. Mm. Uh, shout out to Fusion Motorsports. Is it about where he got the cash? Is that the... the... No, he got it from rap gigs. Mm. I mean, it's just they give it to him. They, they just All love right. paying for things in for cash. Hey, yeah. I think it's just a fun thing to do. I imagine so. Yeah, just let, stacks let me know of if you hundreds. Want, if you want to try it sometime, call me up. But he was looking at Lamborghinis, and he was looking at muscle cars. He was looking at a bunch of different shit. Good for him, man. Yeah. No shame in that game. No, this uh, it's it's fun to watch though. Like I walk in with a duffel bag filled with cash. Like wow. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's the improv. That's the Dan Ninen story. Sorry, Dan Ninen. <laughs> Not sorry. <laughs> Prick. Sorry. That's how I found I out about that. you. I take though. that back. I take that back. That's how I found out about you. So when uh, your okay. name came across again about this. Well, book, thank you, Dan Ninen. You got me booked on the yeah, Joe Rogan show. Made you popular. It has nothing uh, to do with our fact that my chaos under heaven. Um, there's a lot we could talk about. To talk about Jamal Khashoggi for sure, but we're. Um, I want to talk about this. So we were talking mm -hmm. earlier about the there. There was a there was a real problem with the lab leak hypothesis in oh. that Trump was so. He was so adamant in calling it the China virus, the Chinese virus, that there was a lot of people that wanted to resist the idea that it was possible that this thing had come out of this level four lab that just happened to be coincidentally in Wuhan. Now it's being, now that he's out of office, it's being entertained. And not just entertained, it was on the cover of Newsweek. Mm. A lot of like top level scientists are really examining and they're you know, supporting this hypothesis mm. that it's more likely than unlikely. Mm. But uh, we Is were saying, no. sorry, no, I was going to say we were talking earlier that there's very few people um, that were in support of this, and that you 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 right. found it to be crazy. Right, 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 right. Okay, so standard disclaimer. 
we don't know how don't the know. coronavirus yes. outbreak started. You don't yes. know. I don't know. No one knows. He doesn't know. Literally no one knows. No. Well, I don't know that. Nobody knows. I just know that I know knows. There might be somebody who knows who hasn't told maybe us. Maybe in Wuhan. Exactly. Or maybe in Beijing. Maybe. But we'll get to that. But what, maybe the WHO. So, so, so before anyone says that like we're trying to push the lab accident theory, no, 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 we're not pushing the lab accident theory. Well, the argument that I make in the book, and I think I lay out a bunch of evidence to support this argument, but you be the judge, is that we have to investigate the lab accident theory. In other words, not that we know it came from the lab, but that there's enough circumstantial evidence that we can't rule it out. And when I understand very intimately, actually, how this story got so fucked up. And it's in here we are in April uh, 2021, and it's been a year, a year, and we have no information uh, that is getting us closer to the virus. All the investigations have been crap, okay? Uh, there's a lack of curiosity, both in governments around the world, in international organizations, and in the media. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a media critic, but I'm just a guy who worked in the media for 17 years, who, who is kind of shocked that nobody seems to care frankly, about the origins. But the it, to talk about the origin story, we sort of have to first go back and understand how the story got so fucked up. It's really important. And I'm going to do that as concisely as possible right okay. now. You remember back in March, April 2020, it was a very crazy time in all of our lives, right? Things were disrupted. People were getting sick. We didn't get a lot of good information. Uh, we didn't know what was going on. People were losing their livelihoods, their businesses, their family members. And... The, all, this was the time when the coronavirus pandemic, as you remember, started to get very political. Like for the first couple few weeks, it was like, hey, we got a problem here. Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. We all got to come together in this thing. Around March or April is where everybody started to get onto teams. I'm on team mask. I'm on team hydrochloroquine. I'm on team shooting bleach into my butt. Whatever the team <laughs> is, right? I'm on team science. I'm on team, yes. you know, Biden, you know, Beijing Biden, Hunter Biden laptop. I'm on that team. And that's how Washington is. Frankly, it's factional, right? Hmm. Now, because of my odd story that I just laid out for you, I happen not to be in any of these factions. You know what I mean? I just never joined any of them. I, I deal with all of them and I, I move between them. So I'm watching all of this happen and I'm thinking, oh, wait, this is really dangerous because this story is not the coronavirus origin story is not just about blaming China. Because, of course, you could blame China for a number of things in the pandemic, for hiding the science, for hiding the scientists, for jailing the journalists, for not locking down. If, you want to, if you're just about blaming China, and I'm not, you have ample reasons to blame China. The origin story is about figuring out how this happened so that it doesn't happen again. You know, in any disaster in the world, whether it's a plane crash or anything, the obvious thing to do is to figure out what happened. Because otherwise, how can you inform policy and politics to make sure that it doesn't happen again? It seems pretty obvious. But at that time and space where we were all living in this dystopian crisis, that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing is like, you know, where's grandma? Is everyone safe? What should I do? How do I get my job back? You know, stuff like that. Okay, so talking about the coronavirus origin was very considered very impolite. And now add to that the fact that the Chinese government called, and this is in the book, called the State Department and told them, if you talk about the origin publicly, because some of it had begun to be discussed, you won't get your masks. You want your masks? You want your PPE? You, 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 you like you remember those plane loads that are coming from your fact? It's like the American factory in China, but like in the crisis, it wasn't an American factory at all because they just nationalized that shit. And they, they're like, if you don't want your masks, then uh, go ahead, talk about the coronavirus origin. Wow. And I, I, and I talked to a very, very senior, you know, Trump administration official who was just like, yeah, we have to shut up about it, you know. But we're, but it informed their thinking in the sense they're like, oh, okay, well, we have to make changes in our 
government in our society so that the next time this happens, we don't have all the masks in China. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So that's a separate issue. We'll deal with that later. Right now we need the masks. Right? So I heard about this. Uh, <laughs> so, so there were some people inside the government who were like, wait a second. You're telling me the outbreak happened next to the, these two, two labs. There's a bunch of labs, but like these two major labs, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the Wuhan Center for Disease Control. Like we have a CDC, they have a CDC, theirs is in Wuhan. You're telling me that this outbreak happened next to these labs, and what are the labs doing? Oh, they're making bat coronaviruses more virulent through what's known as gain-of-function research, and they're doing that. They're, they have the most bat coronaviruses in the world, and the research that they were doing was to make them more infectious towards human lungs through something called the ACE2 uh, uh, receptor and the S proteins, the, the technical term. And then we have a virus outbreak in Wuhan that's a bat coronavirus where the ACE2 receptor, is, it's the exact same thing. It's not the exact same virus, but it's, it's pretty close. Shouldn't we check out that lab, you know? And this was, became chatter inside the U.S. government, like, again, bubbling up inside the system. And I'm catching this chatter. I'm like, oh, I should probably check that out because I have some sources on China. This and that. I was already writing the book, by the way. And so, so, so then... I found out there were these cables where these U.S. diplomats had gone to this very lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, two years before and wrote back these cables warning, first of all, that there were a lot of safety problems at the lab, that they didn't know how to operate their lab, they were begging for more help. The cables were meant to get them more help. They, the help never was, was given. And, but moreover, they warned about this specific research. And the guys who were writing these diplomatic cables wrote that, hey, because some of the research was published, right? They didn't publish everything they did, but a lot of it was published. Like, and a lot of it was done with American researchers. And these cable writers, these diplomats were like, hey, we got a problem here. This lab is under-resourced and understaffed, and they're doing risky research on bat coronaviruses that could infect humans. That was two years prior, okay? And now that we're in the middle of a pandemic where a bat coronavirus is infecting humans, a lot of people inside the government were sort of like, oh, remember those cables from two years ago that nobody gave a shit about? Like, dust them off, let's see those, you know what I mean? And I heard about them, and I'm like, I got to get these cables. <laughs> I'm like, this is a big story. I got to get these cables. I got to figure it out. So I went to all my sources. Like, we can't give them to you. Eventually, I found a source who gave me the cables, and I published the cables. And that, in a sense, was the beginning. Well, part one big reason why the lab accident theory started to take root in the public space, because now, by the way, the State Department people think that the State Department leaked them. To, that's not true. State, that Pompeo was super pissed at me personally because I, I met with him later he was very very pissed he yelled at me he was not a happy man because again they didn't want to piss off the Chinese because they wanted our masks so I had thrown a wrench into that by floating this now the, again the cables don't tell you what happened in the pandemic because they were written two years before but suffice to say they predicted the pandemic if the lab act, or at least predicted that this could be something that could happen from these labs and but then Pompeo turned on Dom. He's like, yeah, we, probably, we think it was the labs. <laughs> and then wow. Trump, And then they asked Trump the next day. They're like, do you think it was the labs? He's like, well, I can't really get into it. But yeah, it was probably the labs. OK. Now, Pompeo and Trump, to their discredit, were going beyond the evidence. In other words, they were politicizing the issue from the jump. OK. And that immediately went beyond what we knew at that time. And Tom Cotton did the same thing. Right. He said things that if you look back looked pretty reasonable in April 2021. But in, when he said them in February, oh, well, they're doing military research at the lab. And, you know, he was sparking something that he couldn't control. So he got tarred as a conspiracy theorist. Pompeo and Trump got tarred as assholes. In fairness, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, they, were, they, were, they, were, they weren't doing the right thing either. But, but 
here I was in the middle. I'm just like, can't we just figure this out? Can't we just figure this out? So then here comes the scientists, okay? And this is the craziest part of this is that, you know, the scientists who were the best friends of the lab, and I'll name a couple of them. There's this, basically, they're doing this gain-of-function research, which is, again, to take, they collect all the viruses in the wild, and then they bring them to this lab, or a bunch of labs, different labs, and they play around with them and see what's what. And the idea is to predict and preempt the pandemic, right? And this is a $200 million program funded by U.S. taxpayers, okay, for 15 years. You got the American scientists, and the European scientists, and the Chinese scientists going to every cave in Yunnan and this and that, finding all the most dangerous viruses, bringing them back to the lab, and then playing around with them. This was research that was actually banned by the Obama administration in the U.S. That's why they were doing it all in China, by the way, because the Obama administration had put a moratorium on it. And some of it, because it was risky, because there are accidents, because lab accidents happen all the time. And so they moved some of it over to, <laughs> to China, and they kept some of it, they grandfathered some of it over in the U.S. And this program, I mean, first of all, it didn't predict the pandemic, did it? Right, because the pandemic happened, so they didn't right. predict it. So that's that's one thing, but the the no, the 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 theory is that in doing all of these uh, um, uh, experiments to make these viruses more virulent, more dangerous, they created a super virus, not manufactured, not engineered. It's a natural evolution. What they do is they run it from the uh, the the virus into bat into mice that have human lung characteristics, and they do it a few thousand times, and they see. Which ones get the most dangerous? And then they're like, oh, let's look at these, you know. So the theory is that that lab accident, uh, you know, uh, pushed this virus onto the world. A thousand miles from where the bats are, by the way. And that's how we got into this mess. But the problem was, once that theory was floated, the scientists who were involved in that research got on TV and they said, how dare you look at the lab? It could not possibly be the lab. You're a racist and a conspiracy theory if you dare to mention the lab. And if you utter it, you shall be shunned, right? Shunned, Amish style, shunned. And that, that happened, okay? And these scientists, and I'm, I'm putting at the top of the list a guy named Peter Daszak who runs the EcoHealth Alliance, who I've talked about lots of times before, uh, to this day tell us that we don't need to look at the lab, okay? And again, I'm not saying the lab did it. I'm just saying we should investigate all the theories. Let's investigate the natural spillover theory, which is basically that, I can't make this up, that <laughs> a bat bit a pangolin that traveled 1,000 miles and then that spilled over to humans 10 miles from the lab. That's the, that's the other theory. Again, we don't, it might be true. I don't know. You don't know. Or it could have been the lab with all the bat coronaviruses. Now, if you came into this you know, conversation in April 2021 not knowing how Pompeo and these scientists had all corrupted the conversation, you would think we should probably take a look at that lab. But what happened was because these scientists were covering their own asses, they were uh, telling people not to look at the lab, and because most journalists and most, you know, Americans will look at Trump and Pompeo and then they look at a bunch of scientists, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go with the scientists. You know what I mean? It's a natural thing. Like, I get it. I understand yeah. why the media ran with that narrative. I, I was there. You know what I mean? There was a lot of pressure to do that because Trump's a liar and because he was using racist terms like I won't repeat, but like to, for the virus. And you know, that's bad. And he 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 weaponized the issue in a really cruel way. And there was a rise in Asian American hate. And those things did happen. Those were real. And those are horrible things for our society, for those members of our community. At the same time, none of that has anything to do with the lab. But because the issues got so conflated, now to be to even mention the lab accident theory became something that could get you 
criticized as being a racist or conspiracy theorist or worse. And that's what happened to, to oh, and then the WHO does the investigation. Who do you think they hired to do the investigation? Who? The scientists who were the best friends of the lab. Peter Daszak and the EcoHealth Alliance. He was on yeah. the investigation team. Jamie Metzl had come on here and explained the whole situation okay, to us. So Basically, exactly how okay. you're describing it. Yeah, I know Jamie. Yeah. Jamie and I hung out once in Dharamsala, India with the Dalai Lama. Whoa. It's a true story. But anyway, back to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, where was I? Oh, yeah. So they hired the, guy, the best friends of the lab to investigate the lab. Right. It's like hiring Robert Kardashian to investigate OJ. You know what right. I mean? It's like, right. and, and, and when they interview these guys on TV, they always say the same thing. Don't you want the best friends of the lab to interview the lab? Isn't that, we know the most about it. We're doing the research. It would be like Robert Kardashian being like, I know OJ really well. You know, let me do the investigation. I'll figure out the truth. I'll get to the bottom of this. Right. So anyway, so they go to the lab for three hours, talk to their best friends, look them straight like, did you do it? No, we didn't do it. Okay, case closed. And then they concluded in their WHO report that the lab theory is very unlikely. We don't need to look into the lab. Case closed. And everybody was like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. We can't have that. These guys have a conflict of interest. Their careers are tied to this lab. If the lab were found to be guilty again, we don't know. I don't know. You don't know. Peter Daszak doesn't know. Well, maybe he knows, but I don't think he knows. You know, their legacy, this entire project of $200 billion, $200 million, rather, to dig up viruses all over the world would be kaput. It would have to necessarily be stopped, this whole industry. Okay, now here's the part where I'm going to get a little controversial. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Is it okay? Sure. Okay. So if I've gotten you that far, again, just to say that I don't blame anyone out there for having this notion that like this lab accident theory is kind of a kooky thing that like was cooked up by Mike Pompeo or something like that. I get why you think that. But now Trump's not, he's not here anymore, right? We don't have to argue about Trump anymore, hopefully, ever again, right? And we can just look at the piles of circumstantial evidence. And there's a plenty of circumstantial evidence that it could have come, there's some circumstantial evidence that it could have come from nature. I feel that the lab theory has more compelling circumstantial evidence because, again, they were doing that kind of research. They also, there was a huge cover-up and the virus database went mysteriously offline somehow in December 2019. There's also the evolution of the virus itself, right? That it That's what Robert, so Robert Redfield, who was the CDC director at the time, a trained virologist, he says, I took a look at this virus and I concluded that it's so p powerful that it, m it must have been evolved in a lab setting, and he pointed to the gain-of-function research, and they called him a racist, a conspiracy theorist, and all the rest. Yeah. All right. Now, here's the controversial part. The, the godfather of that industry, the head of the, the, of the pyramid, is a guy you may have heard of called Anthony Fauci. I d I've heard of that guy. Right? Yeah. Do you want to hear more? Yeah. Okay. So, Anthony Fauci, the hero of the pandemic is the most important person in the world of gain-of-function research there is. In other words, he is, and not just him, there's Francis Collins at the NIH and some other people, but basically he, he is the one dispersing all of the grants for this. He is the one who pushed to turn it back on after Obama turned it back off. That's a whole other crazy story. He turned it back on without really consulting the White House. That's breaking news. Never been reported. Just broke some news on your show right really? now. Really? Yes. Uh, he consulted the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is like a part of the White House, but he didn't, uh, you know, the, the White House put a pause on it, and then he, like, undid the pause. It, the details are a little sketchy. I'm not saying that he did anything necessarily 
wrong or illegal. I'm just saying that a lot of people that I know inside the Trump administration had no idea this had turned back, turned back on. He found a way to turn it back on in the mess of the Trump administration because the Trump administration is full of a bunch of clowns, right? So at the end, you could get stuff done if you just knew how to work the system. Fauci is the head of that system. Why? What was his incentive? That's his... That's everything. That's his whole career. That's so. He, what he would say, and I, to be fair, again, to be perfectly fair to him, he's trying to predict the next pandemic. He thinks this is the way that you predict the next pandemic by digging up all these viruses. We got to dig up more and more viruses and play around with them because we're going to find how they evolve. Then we're going to come up with therapeutics and vaccines and all this stuff. But there were no therapeutics, right? But we did have vaccines quicker than most because the DARPA funded a, a program to make our mRNA vaccines ten years ago that actually worked. You know, that was a military-funded program, but we can get to that in a second. But that's not related to this. Right. So the, my, my, that's, that's, that's a very fair observation. In other words, the, the $200 million program to predict and preempt the pandemic failed, to predict and, and preempt the pandemic. But, but, but it may have also sparked the pandemic. But may have sparked. But, but exactly. here's my, my, my question. When I read all about the research they were doing, I didn't see what they were doing to prevent it. I just saw they were what they were doing was examining these viruses and trying to find out how they work and trying to see what happens when they get more virulent. But what right. I didn't see is that the invention of therapeutics. Or the I, I hear what you're saying. I'm 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 willing to give these scientists the benefit of the doubt that their honest goal was to create do good science to prevent and predict. Pandemics. Oh, I am too. That's but, not what I'm saying. What I'm, I, don't, I don't know if they produce therapeutics. What I, I'm saying, but did they have a lack of funding in that department? Was all the funding? I don't know. I, I, you know, allocated towards examining the viruses themselves and not towards developing some sort of uh, a therapeutic. Uh, I, I don't. It's you a don't good know. question. Okay. I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. But what I do know is that the majority of their time was spent digging up viruses in the wild and bringing them back to these labs. But Fauci, yeah. when he started it back up, did he start it back up with the intent to just uncover more information so we'd be better informed? His argument was: this is vital research. The longer we pause it, the more danger that we're in. I'm trying to save the world, and so we got to turn this stuff back on because this is how we're going to save the world from the next pandemic, which I'm sure he believed. I'm sure a lot of these people believed. But right. there is another school of thought out there. And the other school of thought is, hey, instead of taking $200 million to dig up viruses and make them more dangerous, why don't you put that money into monitoring and surveillance in the places where the bats are? In other words, if you put resources where the outbreaks are likely to occur, then you can squelch them when they pop up because actually viruses change every day and, and trying to predict the pandemic is a fool's errand. That's another scientific school of thought. That's not the one that Fauci's in. Right. But, but the reason that there's no debate about this is because the NIH and NIAID structure are such that everyone gets funded by them. They're funding everybody. So if you are in the field of virology, there's a 99.99% chance that you're getting money from Anthony Fauci in one way or another your grants, your careers, your chairmanships. So there's no there's no dissent allowed in that community. I learned a lot about the scientific community and the virology no community. No dissent allowed. Years. So no debate? I talk, I talk to scientists all the time who say, I, I think this gain-of-function research is really dangerous. I can't say anything. I'm going to lose my grant. Jesus. I'm going to lose my career. This happens to me all the time. And when Robert Robert Redfield spoke up because he's a big macher and he's a head of the, head of the CDC, he said, it, it's my opinion that it came from the lab. Because he can't declassify a bunch of classified information on CNN, right. but he's talking about what he knows, right? It's obvious to everyone who's in the know that he's seen the intelligence and he's not just talking out of his ass. He's not some Joe Schmo virologist. He was the head of the CDC. He's seen all of the secret, secret stuff, even the stuff I never get, got, got a whiff of. And he, and he went on TV and said, hey, 
uh, I think this probably came from the lab. We should probably look at the lab. And he was called a racist and a conspiracy theorist. F- but by foolish but what people. He's saying, but Fauci's yeah. disagreed with him publicly. Right. So that's the thing. So if you if you just think about it, just for once, again, I, I'm begging people out there, just like, think again. Whatever you thought about the lab accident, it doesn't matter. Whatever you tweeted in 2020, March, it doesn't, nobody cares, right? And the same thing for the Let media. Let it go, yeah. Because it's all confirmation bias now. Like, oh, I, I, I tweeted this in March 2020, and I want it to hold up. Nobody cares what you tweeted in March 2020. Let's just have a, a yeah, rational a moratorium. conversation about what are the likely ways we got into this horrible crisis that we're in. And so for people in the know who are listening to Robert Redfield, it's clear that he's calling out Anthony Fauci. In other words, he's pointing to the gain-of-function research, which he knows, because he's the head of the CDC, reports up to Fauci. He knows that, right? Right. But he's not saying that because even that's too hot for him to say. It's hot, and, to, and the scientists are not going to say that either. Now you have a lot of people sort of on the on the right wing media and the MAGA media who've been saying that for a long time, but they don't have any credibility with the mainstream media. And I'm I'm just like in that weird space where like I wrote a book about you know U.S. China relationships, so I had all these this good reporting, and I'm not MAGA media because I criticize Trump in my columns all the time. So I am mainstream media, but I'm saying we should look at the lab and it messes with people's minds because they're like, oh, why, why is he doing this? Why is Josh pushing the lab? Act? I'm not pushing the lab. Act That's either. the problem today with these rigid ideologies. Exactly. Everyone's on teams. It's all yes. factional. Yes. But I don't care. I don't even care if, if the lab accident theory is true. If the natural origin theory is true, then great. I will leave the ticker tape parade celebrating Peter Daszak and Anthony Fauci through, down, you know, Fifth Avenue. I'm, I'm happy to do that. All I'm saying is that we have to also look into this lab, these labs rather, and that we can't hire the best friends of the lab to look into the labs because right. they have a clear conflict of interest and they fucked it up already. What is the argument? Is that so crazy? Does that no. make me a crazy no. person? No, listen, I'm on your side. I, I don't think it's crazy I, at all. I, I've converted, your, well, Jamie converted you, but I'm <laughs> confirming it. <laughs> That's well, I, all. We I, have to be able to talk about this. Yes. Um, yes, we have to be able to talk about this, and that is part of the problem. But what is the compelling argument against the lab leak theory? Do they right. have one? That's fair. Yeah. So, the, so the so there's two things. There's argument. and There's evidence. So the, the the most compelling argument that I've heard for the natural spillover theory is that most of the pandemics, or most of the outbreaks over time, have been from natural spillovers. The vast majority of them. Okay? Right. That's a statistical argument. Now, that, again, that doesn't speak to this pandemic because statistics are just statistics it doesn't yeah. tell you it's not actual data right it's not actual facts so that's one thing like SARS spilled over naturally now I would say to that SARS spilled over naturally where the bats are right not a thousand miles where the labs are where a which should tell you something yeah. right or a palm civet or a raccoon dog right, whatever right right and then what Peter Daszak will say on TV who says all the time is that oh well we know that the market the Wuhan market the seafood market they call it a wet market it's just a market you know you go to Asia there's markets everywhere mm-hmm. We know that the market had the animals that could have been the pass-through animals. In other words, they had pangolins in the market. Now, that to me, that's not evidence either. That's just, again, a plausible theory. Now, right. why is it that despite a year of searching every pangolin and palm civet and mink and raccoon dog from, you know, Kathmandu to Kabul, Peter Daszak and his friends have never found – they never found any – pangolins linked to the outbreak right there's no yeah that's what i was gonna get at so this is another trope and this is a trope that like we have an opportunity to actually fix right here in this moment which is that you know and this is all it it drives me crazy when this is written into news stories because it's not true which is that you'll see there's no evidence of the lab leak theory and there's lots of evidence of the natural spillover theory that's what a lot of objective journalists will write into their news stories because they've been writing that for a year and they never thought about it really for more than two seconds or whatever 
And the truth is that, it, you know, I think there's much more evidence, circumstantial evidence to be sure of the lab leak theory. But either way, if you say there's no evidence, then you have to admit that there's no evidence of either theory. In other words, we don't know shit. Okay? There's no proof, in other words. There's no animal that links to the market. By the way, the Chinese CDC disavowed the market theory in May 2020. Nobody cared. Nobody noticed. They, the Chinese CDC, they said it didn't come from the market. The market was an amplifying event, not an origin event. Some people went to the market. They found some people who had it. Before. They never. The first people that they found that had it, they never went to the market. They didn't know anything about the market. So, uh, again, and then you have, I think there's, it's very plausible that this spilled over in nature. It's also very plausible that it spilled over into the lab, that, that it was the result of gain-of-function research gone awry at the lab. And we have to investigate them both. Right. And that's, I think, I don't, I, don't, I can't understand, I, I, again, I understand why that's a controversial thing to say, but it ought not to be. Well, what is the argument when, when they talk about the natural And then there's the popsicle theory. theory. Did you know Excuse about me? the popsicle theory? No, what's that? Oh, this is the best one. Oh. So, so after a year of like, you know, so the, we're, we're not talking about the elephant in the room, which is really the, 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 the most important thing, which is the CCP, which is the Chinese government, which is lording over all of this, right? Because it's impossible to talk about this without talking about the fact that the Chinese government has had a year-long campaign to cover up the origin, to, to squelch the science, to jail and disappear anyone who said anything that wasn't the party line. And then to use the scientists who are the best friends of the lab to launder a bunch of really horrendous disinformation. Okay, and that's not to say that the scientists are assets. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that they have an overlapping interest. If you're a scientist, you don't want the lab thing to be true. And if you're the Chinese government, you don't want the lab thing to be true. You have an overlapping interest. It's not like they're not colluding. They're not working right. together. They just happen to say the same exact thing. Okay, right. and, it, and, and the case of WHO report, they actually did work directly together. And what they say is that, okay, well, if we can't find the palm civet you know, that like made the thousand mile walk from Yunnan to Wuhan without spilling over once until it got to the lab doorstep. Maybe it came out on a frozen food package from Norway. Like, like, well, let's go check every frozen food package distributive point that like, you know, that shipped anything, any box into Wuhan in the four months before the outbreak. But hold on a second. Why frozen food? It's the only it, they came. The Chinese government came up with another explanation. If it wasn't the market and it wasn't the lab, well, maybe the virus was on the box of frozen food that came from Norway. Why Norway? I'm just saying it could go from anywhere. In other words, or maybe it came from, you know, Japan or okay, Thailand so or they anywhere. Don't, they don't have an origin. They just, it's a bullshit. Is what I'm trying to say because okay. it's a crazy thing to say. Right. Because it doesn't pass the laugh test. All right. Forget about Occam's razor. I'm talking about the laugh test. When you hear something, can you think about that being true without cracking up in your mind? Okay. It doesn't pass because, you know, what that would lead you to is to searching every frozen food package that's ever been shipped into Wuhan, which creates 100 years of busy work that leads you to no conclusion whatsoever. But the Chinese government loves this because for the CCP, uh, confusion is enough, right? They don't need to find the source. They just need right. to make sure we don't find the source. Got it. They control their information environment. They their people are, have no choice but to hear the things that they say, and anyone who says something different disappears. They're working on our information environment. This is part of the influence part of the book, right? They're, they're, they're trying to change our discussion by getting into our information space and corrupting it for their own malign ways. And in this case, it has a direct effect on our public health because we need to figure this out so we can figure out how to prevent the next one. So this is, the again, I'm not saying the scientists are working with them. I'm just saying the line that they're pushing is the same line now being pushed by these same exact scientists which would only lead you to searching every fr frozen food package that ever came into Wuhan in the last two years, 
which is uh, which is crazy, which is a, a fool's errand. It's another way to distract us from the thing that we need to do, which is just to take a look at these labs. Did anybody which question? Easy, by the way. Did anybody question this frozen food narrative? I mean, it got ridiculed on like the internet, but like these, you know. The, but these scientists are not ridiculing it. They're not saying, "Hey, this doesn't even make sense." They're pushing it. So the ones but, that are talking are pushing it. But why ones, frozen food? This is what I'm con concerned with. I, I'm, how many? Confused with, in other rather. words, the Chinese government wants us to believe. So again, they're trying to avoid blame because they're trying to avoid liability. Right. Three million deaths. Right. No statute of limitations on three million deaths. Right. Every one of those coffins comes with a lawyer. Okay. Think about that. Yeah. We're talking. They're thinking ahead. We're thinking about. You know, should we wear masks or could I go out to a bar tonight? The Chinese government, had, from the get-go, has been way ahead of us in, plan, in looking forward to the next stages of this crisis. The disease is only the first stage. There's going to be broad economic upheaval. They're doing vaccine diplomacy on a, on a broad scale. Right? They're using vaccines to threaten and blackmail and bribe countries all over the world. We're not playing that game. Right? Then they're thinking about, okay, what's the legal liability of us for this thing? Do they want to close down their own labs? No, they don't want to do that. They're, they've got their own interests. So they have many, many reasons to distract us from the, the, the real mission of finding the source of this virus. Now, some people will say, well, oh, you just want to blame China. But here's the crazy part. If the lab accident theory turns out to be true, and again, we don't know. You don't know. I don't know. You know, my wife doesn't know. My parents don't know. But if it does turn out to be true, it doesn't just implicate China. Okay? It, the, 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 the big reveal of the lab accident theory is that it implicates us. That it points the finger back at us because it points because we're the ones who sponsored that research. We're the ones who built up this industry. We're the ones who you know the, it was mostly the French, but who built this lab in China in the first place. Okay, we had this bet on China, and this sort of fits into the broader U.S.-China relationship, which is the the bigger scope of the book. Uh, that if we just engage with China as much as we could and help them out as much as they could, we could that that engagement and cooperation would in turn convince them to liberalize, first economically and then politically, and then we could avoid the Cold War and we would all live in peace and happiness. That was the basic, I'm simplifying it to be sure, stance of U.S. foreign policy towards China since 1972. Okay, And scientific cooperation was held up as the bastion of that, because if you can't cooperate on stopping a pandemic, what could you cooperate on? Right. But the problem is that the Chinese government doesn't think that way, and they don't see it that way, and they're not liberalizing, and it's becoming increasingly obvious to everyone. Uh, slowly but surely, and over the course of the Trump administration, more and more parts of American society sort of realize this idea that, oh, wait, they're weaponizing their engagement against us for their interests, which are adverse to ours, that they wish us harm, in other words. Not the Chinese people, not the, I'm talking about the party, not even yeah. the Chinese government, the party, right, which operates like a cartel. It's like the Gambino family if they ran the largest country in the world, okay? That's what it is, okay? And they, they, they have factions, and they kill each other, and they hate each other, and they're secretive, and, you know, they're, they're more scared of each other than anyone else because they're constantly killing each other. Really? Oh, yeah, it's vicious. I mean, the, if you get, it's just like the mafia. If you get too famous, you get whacked, whacked. Uh, it happens all the time. The, just look what happened to, you know, Jack Ma and Alibaba, right? But Jack Ma, he's still alive, right? Or you yeah, think no, that's no, not he, him? he did better than most. The head of uh, Ong Bong Insurance Group, the guy who met with Jared Kushner in, uh, in 2018, they tried to work out that alleged corruption, uh, he got an 18-year prison sentence. Uh, the head of Ong Bong, uh, HNA, which is like a multinational conglomerate, he fell off like a four-foot wall twice. Twice? Just to make sure. 
you know, there's a, if you Google like China and like falling, people like falling out of windows. Like, what do they not screw their windows in? Right? People constantly, famous businessmen constantly falling out of windows. There's like, they're 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 very uh, uh, nasty to each other. But that's again, if you think of it just like a mafia family, that's sort of how it operates. Like they're 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 working together, and and she she Jinping is the head of it. Now, what that means for us is that, uh, getting back to the issue at hand, is that. Our scientific collaboration may be with these Chinese scientists who are very nice people who also want to solve the pandemic, who dedicated their life to solving pandemics, and that's what they've been doing for 20 years. They don't get to make the decision. Okay, They've got a party guy standing behind over their shoulder who's got a general standing over his shoulder, who's got a, another party guy standing over his shoulder, who's got Xi Jinping standing over his shoulder. And that's what a lot of Americans don't understand. Like, how could, oh, I thought we were just doing open science. What could be bad about that? What, they're going to hide stuff in the labs? Why would they do that, you know? And but for the people inside the government who understood how the CCP operates, of course, it's what they would do. And for the people who saw how they responded to the SARS virus in 2002 and 2003, that's exactly what they did. They did the same things. They did it over again. Just this time it killed 600,000 Americans. Now, again, that doesn't excuse our poor response. That doesn't excuse any of the bullshit that Trump put us through that made it much worse. I'm just saying there's plenty of blame to go around. And, you know, what that tells us about our uh, about our relationship with China, again, not the Chinese people, you wouldn't blame the Italian people for the mafia, right. so you wouldn't blame the Chinese people for the CCP, right? But what it tells us is that this is an organization that has to be viewed with clear eyes, and the clear eyes are that they covered up the origin, they covered up the science, they still won't give us the, the data that they have to this day, and this is having a direct effect on our security and our prosperity and our public health, and so we're going to have to do something about that. And what I, what I say is that we have to start here. We have to start investigating our labs, the gain-of-function research that we're doing here. And you see that happening a little bit now. Uh, you see some congressmen, uh, some more scientists like Jamie Metzl. Jamie Metzl, by the way, uh, you know, took a lot of shit, man, when he started talking about the lab accident theory a year ago. He was, you know, he was just getting attacked all the time. Uh, I mean, me too, to a lesser extent, but like I'm, I'm a journalist, like that comes with the territory. That was one of the problems with Trump is that everything that he endorsed was so problematic exactly. that even if it didn't make any sense to oppose it, people opposed it just based on the fact that it was his. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, but I don't, li- I don't like being on Trump's side any more than anyone else. You know what I mean? But it's, you're not on his side. You're on the side of the truth. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, and I like the way you just weaved your way through this. It was brilliant. The, the the thing that scares me terribly is that there's still people, despite the fact that this evidence is slowly emerging, there's still people that are ideologically opposed to it being true, so they're fighting it hook, line, and sinker. They Here, just yeah. don't. Here's what I say to those people. Uh, the origin of the coronavirus is not a political question. Right. It's not an ideological question. In fact, it's not even really a scientific question. It's a forensic question. Something bad happened. We need to find out what happened. Right. It's not... It, it's not for scientists to solve. It's for forensic investigators to solve. And we're actually impeding that investigation with this adherence, this blind adherence of to course. ideology. Of course. That's what's dangerous, and that's what scares me. And it's getting worse because, I mean, we're a year and a half into this thing, and we don't know shit. Oh, here's another angle, which is, like, help you understand the intelligence community, right? Our intelligence, our vaulted $80 billion intelligence community. $80 billion, Okay. Now, you'll notice, and a lot of people point this out, that when <laughs> when I started publishing about these cables, you know, and, and the scientists came back and were like, oh, you can't talk about the lab accident theory. Don't look at the lab. We went to the lab. We talked to the scientists. They said they were innocent. Uh, and case closed and shut up, you know. 
<laughs> when that happened, the intelligence community leaked to the mainstream press uh, that there was no evidence to support the lab. That's where this no evidence came thing came from, right? Now, because I was sort of inside the system and I was writing this book and I was I actually had like real no shit sources, I was able to sort of trace how that happened. And, you know, there was a there was a gap. There was an intelligence gap. In other words, what happened was a guy by the name of Matthew Pottinger, who was the deputy national security advisor at the time, uh, who spoke Chinese, who used to work as a Wall Street Journal reporter. He was a marine intelligence guy, uh, really interesting guy. His uh, wife is a virologist. His brother is an epidemiologist. He he was, he was reading Chinese social media. He was in the know. He was at the nexus of all this information. And for that reason, he was like the early warning system inside the government and for, and for Trump and, and along with a couple other people. Uh, but he was mostly ignored and shouted down by the political people, right? Because they're like, Don't, how dare you close the economy? What are you going to – you're going to shut down travel from Europe in the middle of the election season? That's crazy. You're going to lose the election. Now, of course, the political people were 100 percent wrong. Because if Trump had done a better response, he might have won the election, and his failed response actually cost him the presidency when people realized that he didn't know what he was doing. But at that moment, guys like Matthew Pottinger were like, hey, uh, we really think this came from the lab. The intelligence people, who also didn't like some of them anyway, who didn't like the Trump people, leaked there was no evidence to fuck with the Trump people, and the mainstream media ran with it because, like, isn't it great to fuck with the Trump people? So They, they leaked it or they decided to run with that narrative to fuck with the Trump people because it's not a leak if they knew it wasn't factual. No, it's factual, but it's it's misleading. Right, I see what you're saying. You know, there is no evidence. There's no evidence either way. Right, got they did, it. They could have leaked. There's no evidence of the natural spillover, but right. they leaked. There's no evidence. They were they I were rebutting what, what Pompeo and Trump were saying, and and so and you know people talk about you know like I'm not going to use the term deep state, but like this was an attempt by them to reset the narrative or somebody in the intelligence community to re a bunch of people, and but what had actually happened was that Pottinger went to the intelligence community and said, "What do you have?" Okay, give me the SIGINT, give me the satellite shit. Do we have any human sources on the ground? We got to look at everything. He didn't say, go prove the lab theory. He said, give me everything on every theory. If you got, if you got the market theory, smoking gun, give me that too. And so he put out this sort of tasking, which is what they do at the White House, and give me everything you got. And there, was, there wasn't anything. Mm. They, they didn't know shit. They still don't know shit. And if this doesn't blow your mind, nothing will. Think about the intelligence failure that that represents. Just think about for a second that, you know, after 9-11, we took our $80 billion intelligence community machine and shifted it over to the jihadis, you know, and then we took some of it and we shifted it back to Russia, and then we took some of it, we shifted it to, to, to like China, like spies, like people trying to honey trap mayors and stuff like that. That's what they do. They'll throw a bunch of Chinese spies at, at American mayors to try to get them to fuck them, and then they comp they're compromised. You know, like old tradecraft. Nobody was looking at this universe of risky research that was going on in a, this network of labs that did involve the military of China. They, they, weren't, they weren't pointed at it, and that's where the pandemic hit. So we're always looking under the under – uh, we're always fighting the last war. We're always looking under the lamppost for our keys. You know what I mean? But then something happens, and then Pottinger goes, and he's like, hey, what do we have on these labs? Like, we don't have shit. And then they leak, oh, there's no evidence for the lab theory. And it was like, oh, Trump is wrong. Let's have a party. And a year later, we what still- What a failure. Huge intelligence, massive intelligence failure, that in any sane world, you would have a commission, you know, like a 9-11 style commission would be like, how did this happen? Not just, how did this happen? How did we get into this dystopian, crazy reality that we're all suffering in? And not just Americans, 7 billion people suffering.
to this day, most much worse than us. Yeah. You know, in a lot of countries, much, much worse than us. And no one's curious. No one cares. Like there's like two Republican, you know, committees that are like issued letters on this. That's all I could ever find. A year later, zero Democrats are interested in this. I I mean, there's a few people in the media, not really, you know, a couple. You know, they're doing their best. I'm doing my best. I can't, you know, I don't know. Nobody listens to me. What are are you going to do? Well, they're going to listen to you. We'll see. It's just one of those things where I'm gonna listen to you. If I can convince you, that that would be like a watershed moment in the, this conversation. Well, I've been aware because of Jamie and because of many other people that the the whole way it was established that it was the natural spillover was very faulty, but not to the extent that you're laying it out here today. I'm and taking I, you a couple more layers down into yes. the system uh, to tell you what was going on inside the beast. And again, I'm 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 not I'm just blurting it all out because it's I I, I don't have an agenda. I don't care. How you? I just. I'll tell you what I know. I'll tell you what I don't know. And what I know is that from the from jump, there were a lot of ser- very serious people who wanted to look into this lab, and for a number of fucked up reasons that we've just discussed, it's still not happening to this day. It's still not happening. Yeah. There's no plan for it. No one's even really. I haven't heard anybody come up with a plan for it. How is that? How is nobody more curious about how we got into this mess? By the way, now I'm really gonna blow your mind. Guess what the. <laughs> Guess what the plan is to respond to the pandemic, the official international government plan, scientifically. Guess. What's the plan? Just guess. I don't know. To take this gain-of-function research and to times it by six. What? Really? Let that thing sink in for one second. Is that really? It's called the Global Virome Project. To take this $200 million program to predict and preempt the pandemic, which didn't predict and preempt, which may have sparked the pandemic, we don't know, but may have, and to dump another $1.2 billion into it, so a lot of which is U.S. taxpayer money, to take the Fauci-Dashik project and just make it huge, much bigger, to, according to the website, to dig up 500,000 new dangerous viruses from the wild to bring back to lab supply. That's the plan. That's our current response plan. Now, don't you think... Who's initiating this? That's the, I mean, it's, it's an international consortium of scientists. It's like uh, from many, many, many countries. Do you think they're taking advantage of the fact that there is this need for an understanding for how to fix some of this, uh, these, uh, a situation like this if it they're were doubli- to occur they're, in the they're, future? They're, they're doubling down. They're sextupling down. Right. On their mistake, if it's a mistake. If it's, you know, but all I'm saying is shouldn't we find out before we... Th- Increase this research sixfold if it is, and here's the, here's the other thing. Even if it didn't cause the pandemic, there's a risk, right? So when the WHO releases its report, the the DASH report says we went to the lab for three hours. Uh, they told us they didn't do it. We said sorry to bother you, and case closed. As they're releasing that report, the head of the WHO, Dr. Tedros, who most right wing outlets accuse of being like a like totally compromised by the CCP. Again, I don't think that's the case. I think he has a conflict of interest. I think he's you know, again, is that the guy that was in that interview with the journalist who refused to say the the name Taiwan? No, that's different. I think that was a different guy. But that's okay. a, like that's another part of the problem is the self censorship yes. that goes on in these organizations. But my view on the WHO is we should fix it, not nix it. In other words, we, you know, these organizations are flawed. But if we destroyed them, we just have to build them again. So we 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 should probably engage it, not not get rid of it. Uh, but anyway, he comes out in the speech during the release of the report, and guess what he says? He says we got to look at this lab. And you guys didn't do enough to look at the lab. In other words, he crapped on his own report in the middle of releasing the report. Wow. Now, again, if you're, uh, uh, just as a curious human being, 
I, I'm like, oh, why would he do that? Well, he was trying to save his credibility and the credibility of his organization because now it seems pretty clear and obvious to more and more people that we're going to have to take a look at these labs. So as time goes on, the investigation will reveal more of this. More people will start looking into it now that it's not no longer taboo. Now that Trump's not in office. I don't know. Maybe. You know, uh, what I find is that, you know, I, I could because I've having, been having a lot of these conversations that, is that, again, when people come to this issue without all that baggage, we have this like kind of like rational conversation that you and I are having right now. But when people come to it with the baggage that they had from 2020, it immediately descends into like, oh, wait, I tweeted this in March 2020. And this is why I think this is still right. And they have to defend it. It's fucking maddening. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm 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 a pretty laid back guy, as you could tell. You know what I mean? Like I'm not into like Twitter, but like I got I had to get into a couple Twitter wars over this because I just I, I couldn't I couldn't help myself. I'm not going to call out any names. You know who you are. Um but they were like, they were like very famous people, uh, people much more famous than me, who were like, "Oh no, this is all conspiracy." I was like, "Hey guys, we got to come together on this thing. We got to forget, think again, think again." Have you ever heard of this book, uh, "Think Again" by Adam Grant? No. You should have him on the show. I'd love to. Uh, he he's a behavioral scientist. Uh, I think I don't know if that's his real title at a UPenn, and he wrote, he wrote this great book, and it it it, it says that. You know what we were lacking in our politics and in our discourse in our society is the ability to challenge our own assumptions and that when new information comes in and to to have some sort of constructive disagreement and testing where you know the where we can allow ourselves to be wrong because the important thing is not to be right first the important thing is to be right at the end right you want to be right when the chips are all down you want to be right at the the conclusion of it. Yes. And so in order to do that, you have to be willing to admit that you might have been wrong in the beginning. And when the new information comes in, you have to rethink your assumptions and rethink. It's more of a scientific method to thinking, but because journalists are the way we are, you know, being right is in, a, in a end of in is an end in of itself. Uh, so we get obsessed with that. And then, of course, for the mainstream media, you're, if you're wrong, you get dunked on by the right wing media, right? But if you're the right wing media, you get you're wrong. There's not really that many consequences. So for the mainstream media guys like me, we're always like on edge because we got to be right 100 percent of the time. And if they catch us once being wrong, then that's like a huge like damage to our credibility. And don't get me wrong, I believe that we should be held to that higher standard. I believe that journalists because we're out there calling people out for their shit all day long. Right. So yes, I I agree. But I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I've made mistakes. You know, if you watch some of the YouTube videos about, like, you will see there have been mis- mistakes have been made. I'm not a perfect journalist, but I'm trying to get it right. And that's yes. the integrity is not worrying about whether or not getting it right means that I was wrong the first time. It's your intent. Your intent is to get it right, not to obfuscate, not to cover up your past right. mistakes by n- ignoring data that's contrary right. to but that. But it's tough because people yeah. have confirmation bias. Of course. You know, and it's, it's a real thing and you have to think about it. And people have source bias. You know what I mean? Imagine you're covering the pandemic and uh, those scientists are your best sources. Right. That's what happened. Yeah. You know, the guy's on like 60 Minutes. There's this uh, the double, triple, quadruple, whatever they're doing with the gain-of-function research mm. scares the shit out of me because is this has this been approved? Is this uh, just a plan? Yeah. No, no. They've been doing it for 15 years. They're- no, no, no. I mean, now with the, the, knowing the response, knowing what happened, Oh, the Global Virome yes. Project. So the Global Virome Project, which is a $1.2 billion expansion of the global of the gain of, 
not just gain of function research, but the the overall industry of collecting viruses from the wild. Yeah. Some of which is gain of function researches. They they may do lots of different things with these viruses. But the idea is like let's go to every cave in Yunnan and in Indonesia, find the worst viruses that we can. When we find a really bad one, that's great. We're going to bring it back to the lab and see what's what. That idea is that is the, still the current plan. Uh, I'm told that you know it, there are people looking at it. It has the funding hasn't actually gone out. But if you ask, that's still the current plan. In other words, there's not another plan. But and, does it include treatments this time? No. Well, I mean that would be done by a different. Right. But I, I mean, if you're if you're examining all these. If you're examining all these viruses, and they're doing what they did with these mice by passing it from one to another and seeing what's the most virulent right. strain. Like, wh what are you doing other than empowering the viruses? You're gaining an understanding, but what 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 I'm good sure that is that gain of understanding if there's no significant treatments that are being developed simultaneously? No, no, I'm sure that they have a plan to link that research with treatments and and this and that. But that I was never done in Wuhan. That's not what the what, that's not the part that would have been done in Wuhan. In right, but words. but they didn't link it to anyone and develop. I'm not treatments. sure. I, as I said, I'm, I I don't I don't want to. I understand. Something, you know, but I they didn't be, have. They clearly didn't have a treatment. Right, but where did the treatment come from? The treatment was the mRNA vaccine. But that's from the original SARS. No, right? it's not. Well, it's from a, what was originally a DARPA-funded defense program. Right, what you were saying earlier. Yeah. yeah. So so think about that. So the, that's like a government investment in a new technology that it worked. You know, because now mRNA have, vaccines, it's amazing technology. And right. that was that was developed so that we could respond to any virus, not to respond to the coronavirus. The beauty of the mRNA technology is that you can apply it to the virus you don't know about, right. which it, it, which is, again, is the big criticism of all of this National Viral Project, which is that the virus is changing all the time. Right. The, one virus changes every single day. So you could d dig up viruses, 500,000 viruses. The next day, those 500,000 viruses will be different. So what are you really doing? Now, again, I'm not a scientist. I know that this is an honest debate inside the scientific community by people who think that this research and whether or not it led to therapeutics, I don't know the details. Again, I'm, I got to be transparent about the, the limits of what I don't know everything about. But the bottom line is that that, that argument, that scientific project, which I, I, I'm, I'm sure does include a path towards therapeutics, how far they got, I'm not sure. Um, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to take all that money, all of it, all these scientists, the whole industry, and do something different. And it's called mitigation, surveillance, you know, prevention, you know, like not prevention, uh, 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 pre-stocking of supplies so that when the outbreak happens, again, probably where the bats are, probably where the viruses live, if I had to guess where the outbreaks are going to, you yeah. know, which is, again, a very weird thing about this one. It happened a thousand miles away next to the lab. You could spend all that money. You could probably save a lot more lives. That's the argument. Well, it? other ones break out in agricultural centers. Yes, yeah. there are. In other words, any theory that you have, you could point to an example. Right. But it doesn't matter because we just all we care about is this example. Right. Is the coronavirus COVID nineteen pandemic that we're all in? That's the one we need to figure out. Right. So, can we figure it out? Is it okay? Can I say that? Is it, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 even if that involves asking some tough questions of Anthony Fauci, who I'm sure again is a very nice man who dedicated his life to solving viruses, and if it turns out that his research help spark the pandemic, well, okay, I'm not accusing him of doing anything illegal or wrong. He was going through the regular process. He was doing approved stuff as far as we know. But he wasn't personally doing it, right? He was doing it in a lab that was cited in 2018 for safety violations. In many, many labs all over the world, including this lab in Wuhan. Now, yeah. the, the the person I do think uh, uh, you know bears a little bit more responsibility is those 
people in the Chinese labs that were not doing the public research. And this is a, a new thing that I'm talking about now, which is that the Trump administration, again, in its Trumpian kind of way, on the very last week of, of existence, put out this statement on uh, January 15th saying, making claims about the lab, bold claims, okay? And they, they did a lot of shit in, the, in that last week. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, like the rioters came, you know what I mean? And then, like, they were like, everything It was very weird. You know, D.C. became a very fucked up place. And I've been living there 24 years. And uh, Capital's still fenced in, right? No, uh, it, 75% fences are gone. Um, oh, okay. The Capitol building is still uh, pretty secure. And uh, I was there for the first time last week. It was very weird and very sad and I, I I attended the, quite accidentally the funeral of a Capitol police officer, the latest one, you know, because now they're the guy that got hit by a car. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know it's tragic. You know, I I spent a lot of time covering Capitol Hill. My wife covered it for a long time. You know, it, I, my wife could have been in that building that day if she hadn't switched jobs very recently. And you know that shit is scary. And uh, you know, walking around D.C. it looked like you know the green zone. That's very that 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 hit me. It really yeah. affected me. Um, but anyway, in that last week, in that confusion, they pushed through a lot of shit. And Pompeo came out with a statement saying, oh, well, we have all this declassified intelligence about the labs, that there were sick researchers at the lab with COVID-like symptoms in September and October 2019, that there was undisclosed coronavirus research at the lab that they didn't tell us about. They published some of it, but there was, and that they were doing military work at the lab, again, that they didn't tell us about. Okay. Now, these are amongst some other claims, but these are the three big claims that Pompeo made. Now, of course... For understandable reasons, or like, how dare you? Know, everyone comes Greta Thunberg. How dare you? How dare you, Mike Pompeo? And uh, you know, at the time, I was like, well, you know, shocking if true. But I can't trust the Trump administration either because they have a habit of lying. <laughs> so the Biden team comes in, and I, I I gave them a couple of weeks to get set. I was like, hey, you got to check this out. Is this true? They put out these statements, and to their credit, they did. They checked it out, and they said, yeah, the facts are true. Now, what the Biden administration said, the State Department, anti-Blink State Department said, we confirm these facts. In other words, our intelligence does in fact show that there were sick researchers at the lab, that there was undisclosed coronavirus research at the lab, and that there was some undisclosed military work at the lab. However, we do not agree with the Trump and Pompeo statement that the lab probably did it. Okay, that was their hedge, right? And if you think about it, the Biden people are being fair, you know, because they don't want to take a stance because they're not they're they're like you. They they weren't part of the bullshit in twenty twenty. They weren't there, they weren't in office. They don't care which way it turns out. They know it might be the lab, it might be the natural spillover. So they confirm the facts, but not the political assertions of the Trump administration. But just going that far, just to say that we confirm these facts was significant. They didn't have to do that. They went and checked all of the intelligence, the one, what what we had, and said, yeah, there, there is this suspicious activity at the lab that we didn't previously know about. Okay. Now, nobody really, when the Biden administration, <laughs> you know, releases lab accident theory data, no, silence. You know, like Robert Redfield, I remember when Robert Redfield was like, hey, we should probably look at this lab. The New York Times headline said, Robert Redfield, former CDC director, pushes debunked theory. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute, who debunked it? Did I miss a meeting? You know what I mean? Because I just wrote a fucking book about it. I don't, what they, do you think that's about? Why Confirmation why? bias and source bias. Is that really all it is? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, again, I worked in the media 17 years. I worked for eight different news organizations. It's mostly incompetence. It's not a conspiracy. Now, I don't mean a conspiracy. What but do you mean? It's, you tell me what you mean. But to say something that, that's so egregious... 
to say that it's debunked when it hasn't been debunked. Yeah. Like what? There's got to be some sort of motivation to do that. I mean, I think some of it is like orange man bad. Yeah. We, we can't we can't let Trump be right. Like, guess what? The broken clock is right twice every fucking day. You know, like, yeah. like uh, you know, so I think a lot of it is that like, oh, because again, you could say that Trump pushed it, right? right. He, he did say things, they did offer things without evidence. They made mistakes. He also merged racism and the origin story in a horribly destructive way in the sense that we can't even untangle it. So now right. if you're on the progressive side, this is why the progressives got mad at Redfield because they're like, oh, you're, you're fueling AAPI hate, right? Mm-hmm. And... You know, and I get why they think that, right? And and I I tried to write, I wrote a column about this where I basically just tried to elevate the voices of AAPI lawmakers. You're saying Asian American Pacific Islanders? Yes, exactly. Okay. So most people don't know what the fuck you're saying. Sorry, sorry about that. It's, okay. I, it's a DC jargon. Um, you know, what I argued is that, you know, it's a it's a, a tragedy that Trump used the China issue to stoke anti-Asian hate, which is I think a fact, an undeniable fact. However, now that Trump is gone, we have to separate these two things. In other words, we can be critical of the Chinese Communist Party without being racist against Asian Americans. In fact, it's crucial that we do that because the Chinese Communist Party intentionally stokes our racial divides, including our anti-Asian hate, in order to divide our society, to undermine our democracy, to advance its own interests. Tons and tons of propaganda and trolls, state media. You should have seen it. Uh, well, the first time Yang Jishir, the uh, state counselor of China, met with Tony Blinken, he criticized him about Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, right? Why is he doing that? In, in the meeting, in the diplomatic meeting, right? And if you look at their embassies and their state media, and it's, I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar enterprise, constantly pumping out, how does America treat its Asians? Look at this statistic, look at that statistic. Now that, in a sense, is a very... Uh, clumsy kind of propaganda. That's what we can see. And it's increasing all the time. And again, with the Facebook groups and the whole thing, all the same shit the Russians did. Okay. And, and it's meant to drive a wedge into our society to inflame our existing tensions, again, to undermine our own confidence in our society and our democracy. Oh, look, democracies are so messy. But you have freedom of the press, but everyone's pushing fake news, you know. And uh, look at China. It's so wonderful. Like, we only have, there's only one, there's a million newspapers, there's only one story, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's only, you know, you go to the bookstore, this is the book you need to read, that you better download it. And by the way, if you don't download it, we're going to ding your social credit score, you know. Hmm. And so that's the way, that's the overt part. Then there's the influence part, which, again, is a big subject of the book, which is, harder to talk about because it's less visible. And this is the seeding of American institutions with cash and uh, favors and relationships that the Chinese Communist Party has deftly built over decades on both sides of our political spectrum, but also in our institutions, in academia, in Wall Street, especially in Wall Street, in Silicon Valley, in our sports, in Hollywood, okay? And you see it everywhere. And, you know, the, w- there are certain m- watershed moments where it pops into our public consciousness. And I'm talking about the NBA here, right? You had one guy, Daryl Morey, who I've, I don't know if you know this, is a former uh, uh, DOD and CIA contractor and a, a MITRE researcher, a smart guy. He did like the Moneyball research. He's like a, a brilliant national security guy who happened to find himself as the manager of the Houston Rockets while they're cracking down on Hong Kong. He said one tweet and the NBA is fined punished to the tune of $400 million, you know, canceled in China, you know, major scandal. And his tweet was just in support of the Hong Kong protesters, is that what yeah. it was? Yeah, one tweet. And they 
punished the entire industry. The, all, it was the big scandal in, 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 in sports history, really. And all of a sudden, millions of people are like, wait a second, we can't tweet something? They're going to punish our entire company, maybe the whole league? You know, $400 million is not nothing to sneeze at. And, of course, the NBA, and this is kind of like what I argue in the book, they didn't know how to deal with that, okay? They didn't understand what they're, much like the American scientists, much like the American media, they didn't know what they were dealing with. So what Adam Silver did, quite tragically, was he went to the guy who he thought would have the best line on it, Joseph Tsai, the head of the Brooklyn Nets, who's like a CCP party member. He's like a Canadian Taiwanese billionaire, but he's like, uh, you know, a, 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 a chief promoter of the- Wait, What did you call him? A kid eating? CCP party member, kid eating. What did no, no, you no, say? No, 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 no. Delete that. I never said kid eating. No. What, 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 what did you say though? After that, you said CCC party member. CCP party member. And then you said something else. Canadian, oh, Taiwanese. Okay. You're, you're talking Sorry. so fast. Okay, I, I got to sound, sound like you're saying kid eating Taiwanese billionaire. Like, what? <laughs> For the record, I, I did not accuse Joseph Tsai of eating any. We can kids. cut that out. We'll no, cut no, out the confusion. Believe it. I just want. Okay. I just want to. I just want. I was to like make it clear so confused what you were saying. Sorry. Canadian. Okay. okay. So Joseph Tsai puts out this Facebook post, which basically is the Chinese Communist Party line: "You may not criticize Chinese policy." The uh, 1.4 billion Chinese people were super offended by that tweet. Never mind that they don't have Twitter in China; it's completely banned. You know. And so that what the NBA did is was what all these companies do when they get punished by the CCP is they bow and scrape and beg for forgiveness and promise never to do it again. So they're saying 1.4 billion Chinese people were offended by a tweet in support of Hong Kong protesters who were seeing their freedoms impinged upon by the policies of the CCP. Correct. But that's not true, of course, because they don't have Twitter in China. It's banned. Not only that, it doesn't make sense. Like, and it doesn't make sense. But anyway, the NBA eventually, then they got dunked on by Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke and any politician who wanted to be tough on China, right? And this is like in D.C. It's like very good politics to be tough on China. I'm really tough on China. And NBA, how dare you kowtow to the Chinese Communist Party and you know not fire Daryl Morey and apologize and blah, blah, blah. And my reaction was like, wait a second. Why are we expecting the NBA to deal with the Chinese Communist Party? That's not fair. They're not a foreign policy organization. They don't know what to do. You know, they're not powerful enough. And they probably don't understand the dynamics. They don't understand. They clearly, they learned, but it, once they were in the soup, it was too late, you know. Right. And they eventually course corrected, but they're still trying to repair all that damage. And that's, How did they course correct? Well, they issued a statement expressing support for Daryl Morey's right to free speech. But then they issued a different statement in Chinese that was less supportive, mm. you know. And then they, you know, paid their penance or whatever it was and tried to maintain their relationships in China and tried to move on. Um, but my point is that, you know, that's how the CCP operates. They will ruin your industry, your business, for the slightest, the slightest offense. This happened uh, two weeks ago with H&M and Nike. Okay? And, it's, and it's because the business is tied to China because China does do business with the NBA. Huge business. Huge business. Huge business. And you think that this is, is it because China enjoys having the NBA as an entertainment entity, or is it- Chinese people love the NBA. That's what it is? They're, they're, NBA is huge in China. It's, it's also, if you think about it from the NBA's perspective, that's their growth. That's their future. Right. You know, that's their biggest growing market for everything, from jerseys to games to you name it. Uh, and with a lot of sports, that's the case, too. 
and with Hollywood, and with right. the stock markets, and, and with they, Silicon Valley tech companies, and with American universities, all of the sectors of American society see the Chinese economic market as a huge lure, as well they should. And they do edit films to appease the standards of the Chinese party. Self-censorship is part of is the pr cost of doing business. Right, but there's certain things they do, like in Doctor Strange, the Tibetan master was replaced by an uh, Anglo-Saxon woman. Yeah. This is my Tibetan face mask, and now you will never be, this episode will never be aired inside mainland China. Did I just... Just now? Well, I think it's probably already not going to be aired because of all the shit you said. Yeah, that too. But, but now this will, really, this will really seal it, okay? Um, and good. You know what I mean? I, I, that's not to say we shouldn't engage the Chinese people. We need exchanges. We need to have business there. And this is another sort of conundrum of the U.S.-China relationship that I try to take a stab at, at my book in my book, which is that, you know... We have to engage with the Chinese people. We have to have. We can't decouple our economies. We can't live in two different worlds forever. It's not going to work. Right. But we have to find a way to live with China, and we have to convince the Chinese government to find a way to live with us in a way that doesn't compromise our security and our prosperity and our public health. In other words, you know, while we want, we would love. It's not about regime change. It's not about a cold war. These are sort of like bumper stickers that people throw out to dissuade people from having an honest conversation about how to deal with a Chinese Communist Party that is becoming increasingly problematic in ways that affect our lives. And what I'm trying to say is that, you know, the, we have to be clear-eyed that, you know, this is not about China or the Chinese people. This is about the party. This is the way the party operates. Do you think that, that uh, so there's that company that was airing the, Chinese, the NBA games, they're making a lot of money off of that. They didn't want to stop airing the NBA games. They had to do that because the party said so. When Nike, what was it, what did H&M do? They put up a statement questioning whether or not the cotton they were getting from Xinjiang was made with forced slave labor. Just so, like, hey, we're going to look into it. For that one statement, their entire business in China was crushed. Okay, Nike, same thing. For years, they resisted. These companies, again, they're in a tough position. I get it. Uh, hey, uh, the cotton that you're sending us, is that was that picked by forced labor slaves? Like, are we allowed to ask? Is it okay? Just for that, Nike's business was... Uh, destroyed inside China. Propaganda how, campaign. How so was it destroyed? They they literally create a, well, they do boycotts. And again, it's not like here where like you can boycott something, but you have to convince people. There it's like if the government says there's a boycott, there's a boycott, right? And then you're, 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 your company can't sell anything in China, and that's 40% of your business. You're fucked. And it's a pretty big incentive, right? Mm. And none of these companies are powerful enough to stand up to the CCP on their own, which is why I think the, they have to work with a, the U.S. government in some sort of way, but that's not really going on because politicians just want to dunk on the companies or they want to like criticize them for not doing the right thing, but there's no positive incentives to say to the NBA, hey, listen, why don't we you know, get together on this thing and we'll use our diplomatic pressure and our diplomatic tools to make sure that American companies and industries don't get punished by the party for bullshit, like, like a tweet, but we're not sophisticated enough in our discussion of China or in our government response to China the, to actually make that happen. But I think that's basically where we have to go. And which brings up one, another inescapable question, which is, if Nike's using uh, slave labor for their shoes, why are sneakers so expensive? What's the overhead? It's a very good question. How are sneakers $150? But anyway, that's neither here nor there. What would they cost if you paid people well? Exactly. Yeah. And what's happening? Is it just greed? Some yeah. Massive profit margins? Yeah. So anyway, this is a long way of saying that 
the parties, uh, uh, if, if, to understand China, you have to understand that the party is in control of everything. And that uh, dealing with that is just the way things are now. And that doesn't mean that we have to have a Cold War or that we have to decouple from China. It just means we have to figure out a new way to first try to convince them not to do the worst things, and then second, to protect ourselves if they insist. One of the things that's confusing to people is that this was never a narrative a decade or two decades ago. This is a fairly recent discussion that sure. we're having about China. China was an innocuous, just an enormous country with a lot of people just two decades ago. Sure, Nobody thought about this at all. They didn't think about China as being this incredibly influential superpower that had its, uh, particularly its its tentacles in, in terms of business, like how much business they own, uh, how much, what, like during the pandemic, there's been a lot of purchasing different stocks and learning how how much China has bought percentages of companies, right? That's, that's another Absolutely. thing that's happened during the financial crisis. <clears throat> Yeah, well, I mean, so this is a I I get this a lot because you know there's a group of China hands. These are like the old guys who have been managing, I would say, mismanaging the relationship since 1972, since we had our opening, right? And uh, you know what they'll say is that what are you talking about? This is a new problem. We've been dealing with this for 40 years, <clears throat> and we had these extensive plans of how to deal with China, and some of them worked, and some of them didn't, and then China went a different way. And I get that. That's the discussion inside the China hand community of these old gray beards, kind of like ivory tower kind of guys all of whom i know right but i'm not i'm not that i'm not a chinese i'm just a journalist right right uh but what i say to that is that yeah that's fine but like first of all how's that going you know what i mean how uh, you're the china hands managing the relationship how's that looking right now and then secondly what i say is it's clear that this is has to be a discussion that has to be had by all americans because no longer does it affect just the china watching community now it affects all of us if you're sitting in your house uh, if you haven't seen your grandmother in a year, if you're worried about getting sick and dying, you know instinctively, and we can debate how much, but you know that some of that is because of the decisions and policies of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. In other words, what happens in Beijing doesn't stay in Beijing. And uh, you know, now that they're intentionally interfering in our politics, our sports, our music, our Hollywood films, our stock markets, our Silicon Valley tech companies, and our academic campuses, we have to get more people into this conversation. That's what I'm here to do today. There will be millions of people who have never thought this much about China, and I'm trying to engage them honestly. You know what I mean? I'm trying to convince them not to think what I think, but to educate themselves and join in the uh, 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 constructive discussion about how do we deal with this shared problem. And that's a very difficult discussion to have. And it's, it's almost impossible to have in Washington because Washington is so fucked up right now. And But I saw that discussion happening on campuses and inside Silicon Valley tech companies and inside Wall Street firms and inside the government. And the problem was that all these discussions were siloed. And then when the FBI comes a knocking at your university and says, hey, we got to take a look at all your China research, universities are like, fuck you, you know, because in America, our institutions guard their independence fiercely and rightly, you know, and they're, so they're not trying to get the FBI to help them. But on the other hand, this is a problem they kind of need the FBI's help for. And that, that's, again, a level of sophistication that we're just not at yet. And hopefully the book is meant to sort of bring everybody to some sort of base level of understanding of the problem that we're dealing with so that we can talk about the solutions. When you're going over this kind of information and you're writing a book like this and you have the, all this data that you just spilled out and you 
Do you, do you feel like a man without a country in a lot of ways? I don't mean a, a literal country, but I mean in terms of like being connected to a group of people that see your point because you're you're stepping out there in sort of in violation of both ideologies. Well, like, you, no, I mean, uh, in a way, I think that I'm putting a voice to a lot of things that a lot of people have been talking about. For sure. Privately for a very long time. And there's, you know, first of all, inside the government, you know, this there these were a lot of issues that people were wrestling with and very uh, honestly in many cases even before well before Trump uh, it just didn't get talked about publicly for a lot of the reasons we've already discussed can I get a hit of that or is that yeah give me a little give me that mug oh this mug has one of them's empty look at that you got my brand too Buffalo Trace sir you ever drink the Eagle Rare Uh, I don't know it's like a it's like one of the sub Buffalo Trace brands all right now we're talking yeah I feel like this this Conversation's getting so heavy. We could use a little booze. Oh, that's the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, it's so, just, it's, it's that, so... Can I answer your question? Yes, real, please. Yeah. Nobody cares about me. I'm, I'm just a guy doing his job, okay? I'm like, like you know, there. I get attacked sometimes. It doesn't matter. You know, nobody nobody gives a shit about whether or not I'm in a team or not. I'm I'm just trying to do my best to, to report the story. To do the reporting. Yes. And I'm not the only one. There are more and more people. So, yes, so for a while, people like me who were doing this reporting, again, difficult things to talk about, Chinese influence in our schools, that's a complicated thing. It pits two American interests against each other. We want academic freedom, but we also want, you know. Funding for research. Yeah, and I get that. It's a very tough thing. There are more and more people every day. What is the influence in the schools? What, where? <laughs> um, three, three types. Um. Okay, so one is just money, so much money. I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of donations. And if you think that money is, isn't corrupting, then you're a fool, okay? And when you have a school, school take $200 million to build their, chi- their, their law school, and it's all from uh, a, a Chinese, link, Chinese Communist Party-linked billionaire, that, you, that school is not putting out research criticizing the Chinese government ever, okay? They've just bought that school. Okay, and the way that they do it is through a network called the United Front, and the United Front dates back to Maoist times, and it was it's 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 still referred to as striking the party's enemies by using the party's friends, and the United Front system in China is part of the party; it's baked into its DNA, and what they do is they lord over the party's interactions with anyone who's not in the party. Now, some are in China, some are overseas Chinese, and some of them are foreigners like us, and the way that they do that is through proxies, and what they do is they set up like hundreds all over the world of these proxy figures and organizations uh, which launder the money, billions and billions of dollars into our institutions, hand over fist all day long for years and years and years and years. And no one ever knew it, like kept track of it. Now people could take, take, uh, keep track of it like a little bit, but not really. You know, like the Trump administration tried to uh, force these uh, universities to report on their foreign funding because they're supposed to, by law, report when you get a certain amount of money. None of them were doing it. They found all sorts of bullshit and so all sorts of corruptions. So that's the number one w- they, way they do it is they take billions of dollars, they give them to their proxies, which are like Hong Kong billionaires or you know Malaysian billionaires or whatever. Somehow they find it, it Thai billionaires, somebody who has an interest in doing business with the party and has billions of dollars, and somehow they find their way onto American campuses and all sorts of crazy ways, okay? There's a, a, a really good story about this in the book about UT Austin. 
because we're in Austin, that I won't, I'm not even going to tell you because I want people to buy the book. But there's a UT Austin <laughs> story in there. It'll blow your mind about how they tried to like use Chinese Communist Party money to fund the China Center at UT Austin. And the, some of the professors were like, wait a second, because these were China professors, and they were like, wait a second, is this a good idea? And it became a huge scandal inside the school, and the Washington congressional offices got involved. I got involved. I wrote a column about it, and they rejected the money. And that was like the first time they had ever done that. And wow. this, this Chinese influence operation that was targeted at UT Austin at the LBJ school was thwarted. But that would never have happened a couple of years ago because people weren't even discussing it this way. And that's a real example. So that's one. The other one is through uh, Confucius Institutes. Do you know what these are? No. So, you know, there are language and cultural learning centers implanted inside universities all over the world, hundreds of them. And, <laughs> I, you know... <laughs> I, I joined the Confucius Institute at GW I, just, just to see. I wanted to see if there was, like, any corruption there. And uh, I'm an uh, alumnus, so I, I just, like, I signed up. You could just sign up for, like, a, I audited Chinese 101. I'm like, let's see what's going on. And so I, and, as part of the reporting for the book, and, I, and I, uh, I took Chinese 101, and guess what? There was no malign Chinese influence in the Chinese 101 class. We were just a bunch of people learning Chinese, a bunch of college kids. Uh, I went to the reception, like the the bar that I used to hang out at when I was in college. I'm 20 years later. I'm the 40-year-old guy at the bar. <laughs> and uh, they come up to me and they're like, Mr. Rogan, why do you want to study at the uh, Confucius Institute? And I just looked at them. I said, education is a lifelong endeavor. And that was it. Because they didn't, they, I didn't want them to know that I'm trying to squeeze out the foreign influence in the Confucius Institute. Anyway, that one was fine. Other... It, Universities, it's a different story. They use the Confucius Institutes to plant spies. You don't have to plant them in the GW one because Washington is full of spies. Um, <laughs> it's true. You put, you put them anywhere. You know, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a couple spies in Washington. Really? They're everywhere. So everywhere. Do you just assume when you're talking to people that they could possibly be spies? Well, I mean, it, they're not. Some of them are really easy to spot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the Russian guy with like 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 the belt up to here and like the the white patent leather you know loafers who's like. Oh, Mr. Rogan, oh, uh, well, you're here at this bar too? Oh, let's go have a drink. You're like, okay. Uh, I know you, man. I know you, man. Do you but drink with them anyway? Fuck yes. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot of, I had a lot of good times uh, hanging out with spies. There was this one Russian guy. about them oh sending you text messages? Like we were talking about uh, the Pegasus before the podcast yeah, yeah, outside. Yeah. About the uh, my phone is fucked. By the way, this the Chinese already heard this podcast before. It, it, it's totally compromised. Ah, it's true for sure. There's, there's a whole story there too. That Why I don't you get a new one? I did. It's at the hotel. I just I haven't loaded all the apps on it. Oh, okay. But yeah, no. I I was calling my wife. You shouldn't load any apps on it. That's the new. That's what I'm going to do now. I know. Yeah. I was I, I was calling my wife, and then I, I a guy from the Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency picked up the phone instead of my wife. Whoa. And he didn't know why I was he was getting my call, and I didn't know why I was calling him. And it happened like three different times. Whoa. And then I tweeted about it, and everyone was like, oh, that's super weird. But I never really figured it out. Why'd so, you tweet about it? I thought like that. Them, I would want to investigate privately before I, I wanted, put that I, out to the GP. I was trying to get the Homeland Security Department to check it out. Right. And they, so I was like, if I tweet about it, they'll have to. I thought it was the U.S. government spying on me. I don't think that anymore. I don't think that's what happened because they checked it out. They found out that I was actually talking to a, a cyber infrastructure security agency person i actually did like they found that guy his name's sydney uh -huh. and but he didn't know why he was getting and they don't really do that at, at at that agency anyway so it didn't really make any sense so what do you think was going on someone's fucking with my phone i don't know somebody is 
it, it, I don't know who. Well, after this conversation, I can imagine why people are fucking with your phone. Yeah, no, I mean, it, again, it comes with the territory. But there was this one Russian guy I used to hang out with all the time, and we were like, before I was married, we used to smoke Russian cigarettes and just like eat steaks and, and drink all the time. And you know, I, I don't have, I'm, I don't have any secret. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't have any clearance. I can meet, hang out with whoever I want to hang out with. You know, that's the fun of being a journalist. And one time, the FBI came and knocking on the door. They were like, Mr. Rogan, have you seen this man? And it's like my buddy Andre. I was like, Andre. I was like, I, I was like. No comment. And they're like, well, you know, we just want to let you know that uh, we think he's a Russian spy. I'm like, noted. Goodbye. I just hightailed it out of there. Wow. So, yeah, that's that's. Like, what are, what's the difference between Russian cigarettes? Uh, They're like, um, like take off the filter of like, like a camels. Cigarette. I don't know what they were, but they were, they were pretty strong. I, camels I mean, don't have filters, right? No, they do. They Paul do? Mall. Some Paul, of them do? Paul Mall's the one that did. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's rough. Some camels have. It was like no a test. Filter? He would give me the Russian cigarettes to see if I could. Oh, thank smoke you. Them down. But I quit smoking many years ago. Thanks again to my. Did you? Wet, you smoke cigars? Wet. I'll have an occasional cigar. Sure. You want one right now? You want to smoke a cigar in the middle of the show? Why not? Yes, please. We're already drinking. Okay. I feel like this is getting juicier. Oh, I got more shit. I know you do. What do we got here? Um. Uh, these are from uh, Foundation Cigar Company. Okay. They put these fucking weird wrappers on them, but you get underneath there, you get the real thing. Nice. Shout out to them. Do I get any uh, free uh, yeah, Buffalo Trace? Whatever the fuck you want, bro. <laughs> I'll give you a bottle. You want a bottle of Buffalo Trace? No, no, no. no. This experience is reward enough. But no, I, we have like a case of it. They sent us a shitload. Pop the top. That's awesome. Yeah, just hear it like this. Um, got it. There you go. You got it? There you go. Yeah. Um, Buffalo Trace is one of our sponsors, so they, they sent us a bunch of it. I just love the fact they're actually older than America. I love Buffalo Trace. Yeah, they're great. It's a fantastic whiskey. But it's also, I just love the fact that they're from 1773. They've been continuously distilling whiskey in this country. Mm-hmm. Now we're partying. Oh, that's tasty. Yeah, good shit, right? Thank you. Mm. My pleasure. Thank you. They sent me a box recently that uh, actually has my face on the wrapper. Sweet. They made, they made a little, uh, not on the wrapper, on the little, what is that thing called? The I band. I have no idea. The band. Awesome. Yes. Shout out to them. They hooked us up. Um, so where were we? Spies, Russian spies, oh, yeah. white loafers. Oh uh, yeah, that's not what we're talking about. The government calls. Oh you yeah, up, academia. You. Yes. You want to yes. go back to that, or you want to go for Russian Keep spies? Whatever you want to talk about. Man. <laughs> no, it's your show, man. I'm, no, but I'm you're here. a guest. I want I want you to I want you to be you. And so just express. I don't yourself. know any other way to do it. I know you don't. That's why I like <laughs> I like it. I'm I, have no cho- I, have no, I have no choice. This would be. I think this is the first of many conversations that I they don't so. kill you. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you might want to, you know, delete your Google search history after this, just in case. Well, my search is already fucked. And believe <laughs> me, if they, what are they going to find about me? That's true. Kind yeah. of an open book. Yeah. I'm just, okay, so American universities, right? Yeah. So here's a great example of like, you know, a really tough problem in U.S.-China relations, which is that like. We want Chinese students to come to America, right? Not just for the schools who make a bunch of money off of it, but because that's a key way of 
you know, having our societies not fall into these silos where we can't deal with each other, which is terrible, right? At the same time, there's a threat there because once they build these Confucius Institutes, oh, by the way, there's a lot of corruption in the Confucius Institutes. Then they tell you that you can't have the Dalai Lama come to your campus because they're going to offend 1.4 Chinese, oh, Chinese people. That's a real example. And then they have these student associations, which are linked up with the consulates. And what they do is they like monitor the Chinese students. So if you're a Chinese student in America, you still don't have free speech because everyone's watching everybody. And if you say the wrong thing, Boom, you're, you're, you're on the next plane back to China and your whole family is fucked. Okay, so then we have like, oh, well, when Chinese students come to America, can, are, should we protect them? Should they be able to say what they want? Or is that none of our fucking business? On the other hand, you know, if we put big barriers up to these Chinese students, uh, you know, aren't we becoming the thing that we hate? Aren't we right. becoming the thing that we're fighting, which is a closed society that's like doesn't, that treats people from outside Badly, you know, like I can't go to China right now. The last time I went to China was 2016. There's no way I could get a visa at this moment. All the Washington Post reporters were kicked out even before. You know what I mean? Right. So we don't want to become the thing we're fighting. We have to. The best way to to compete and with China is to be the best version of ourselves. To make sure that our model is the attractive one. And the way that we do that is, in my opinion, is by living up to our values and by being decent and tolerant and pluralistic and open and free and democratic and standing up for human rights and the rule of law and all those things that we profess to believe in. Not that we've done a great job of it. Like you, I, I watch your show. You have plenty of people who point out all the flaws in that history. I agree with that. Yeah, mistakes were made. But nevertheless, that's, what, that's our argument to all the countries in the world because what they're doing is they're exporting that authoritarian model, not in the exact same way, but the technologies and everything, to any despot and dictator in the world who will purchase it, you know. And so there's, and that's the, that's the grand struggle. It's not really about the U.S. versus China. It's about free and open societies uh, responding to China's rise where it affects us. And because Trump was uh, Trump, it's got framed as a U.S.-China Cold War. But the honest way to talk about it is an international response to China's actions as it rises. And that response requires dealing with all these other countries, which have different interests. But on there are cases where the interests overlap and there are cases where our values overlap and we have to take advantage of those overlaps in order to join together to, again, combat uh, the biggest country in the world that's run by a mafia organization. Okay? And that's, these are very, very complicated things to think about. And that's where that discussion, again, is not really happening. Despite all, the, all you get is like, you know, China bad and then, oh, you don't say bad about China. You're a cold warrior. And that's like the level of the of the discourse and it's crazy and it's really it's it's the opposite of what we need and that's sort of like where where I'm at on it. Is it possible that the recognition of this issue and especially when it relates to American um, institutes of higher learning could allow them to understand the whole in the logic of having these sort of closed ecosystems where they have this uh, there's echo chambers in American institutions of higher learning now. I mean, all, so many universities are they're 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 not just they're not liberal in the sense of like what we originally thought of as they're leftist, mm -hmm. and because of that they they won't even entertain opposing viewpoints or have debate, which is very dangerous. And it's sure it's also uh, and this is not to say that you should support those other ideas, but you've got to entertain them and debate them and squash them with better logic. 
And right. if you don't do that, if you don't have the space to do that, right. the, the the simple lazy way to handle it is to stop it and to pull fire alarms and to yell at people and to not have people that have opposing viewpoints and yeah. don't allow conservatives on your campus. But I think it's really dangerous, and I think it opens us up to more manipulation, right? If if if, if if not just China, but whatever foreign entities are, and we know they are. We know Russia's doing that with the Internet sure. Re- Research Agency. They're manipulating our biases, and they're aware of them, and so they're using our own struggle that we're having internally with free speech and with open discussion and, and honest debate. And they're, exactly. they're reinforcing the idea that it's a good thing to stop this stuff and to squash it. And we're proving them right by acceding to their... Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. I'm hoping that right. the silver lining is we recognize that one of the reasons why the, the First Amendment is so important, it's, it's we need to figure out who's right. And the mm-hmm. only way to figure out who's right is to listen to who's wrong and to have the person who's right debate the person who's wrong and let's find out where the facts are. Let's find, and let's also agree to disagree occasionally. Isn't right. that okay? I mean, constructive it's not, disagreement. It's is, not. It's not anymore. If you're you know. in this country now, if you are in any way conservative, you're a Nazi and you're a racist and yeah. you're a, a terrible person yeah. and you you know you're against history. It's like that's not the case. There's a lot of people that are physically conservative but socially liberal, and there's a lot of yeah, people that like yeah me. yeah I, I I think I am as well. I'm I'm certainly. There's a lot of me that leans towards, like, I understand human nature, right? And this is one of the reasons why I'm a big proponent of the Second Amendment. I don't understand why people don't understand that there's times where you can defend yourself with a firearm. And how is that not, how is that, when, when, you, when you see people saying that, oh, if you are in favor of the Second Amendment, you're in favor of mass shootings, you're in favor of horrific acts of violence and crime against people. That's, no, that's not. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is the reality of human beings. Like these ideologies, the problem with them, specifically in this country, is that you get lumped off into camps. And if you don't agree with one side, it's teams. Yes. And factions. Chris Rock had a great bit about it years ago about gangs. That you're in a gang. You're in a you're in a liberal gang. You're in a conservative gang. And he's right. It's like his he he did a great job of putting it into comedy. And Chris does an awesome job of doing that with a lot of subjects. Sure. But with that in specific, in, in, in particular, it really resonates today because people don't have the time to research like you've done with China or like many people have done with many subjects right. and really find all the nuances and yeah. find all, all the things that are uncomfortable to discuss, like you're discussing with uh, all the, the things about COVID-19, like the things you're discussing about the CCP and their influence and all these different businesses and entertainment and there's a lot of people that don't have the time to do that. So when you start criticizing, the, you know, in any right. way, China, they equate you to racist. And right. don't you understand about the anti-Asian American hate right. that's, that's elevated in this country right now? And it's, it's a it's, tragedy. It is a tragedy, but it's a tragedy that's held up by our education institutes. Correct. And that's what's that's the biggest tragedy. They're the, supposed to be the people that rise above this. But inside their own institutions, there's these echo chambers and these echo chambers. They want to reinforce what they've already been pushing for all this time. And they don't want to open the idea. There's a reason. Right. Yes. So. So first of all, I agree with everything that you said were to the word. But the, the, the way I, that, that hits me into my when I filter that through my own intellectual prism is that the incentives are driving people into those things. In other words, 
why are why are journalists on team Trump or team uh, Democrat or team scientist? It's because that's the that's the incentive that results in their success in their careers. That's that's the human nature. Yeah, the corporations have the incentive. What's their incentive? To make money for their stockholders, not to defend human rights for the Uyghurs, right. right? The colleges, their incentives are not to get sued, so they have to create all these crazy safe spaces and the such, right? So if, if we if we build our incentive system to drive people into the teams, and then we're like, why is everybody on teams? And then isn't that fucking up our own t- uh, discourse? Well, th- it draw it leads me to the conclusion that okay, well maybe we have to change the incentives. And you know, when you talk about like conservatism, liberals, again, I think the only reason that people even listen to me on this topic if they do i hope they do is because i i'm you know i'm criticizing trump and i'm praising trump that messes with their minds right i'm criticizing the ccp but i'm not a conservative i'm you know a, a, a center left democrat you know i always have been i did, i never you know preach about it cuz it's not relevant really to the us china relationship in any serious way but you know i I've, I've been doing this for 17 years i never you know Joined the conservative media because I never joined the liberal media because I, I I didn't believe in either of that shit. I think my basic premise is both sides are fucked, right. and both sides are corrupt in their own ways. And by the way, as a journalist, if you're criticizing both sides, you get double the stories. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like if you can pull that off, if you can yeah. source on both sides and criticize both sides, then you get double the scoops and double the credibility. That's not again. I'm not perfect. I haven't always done that perfectly. I'm sure I have my own source bias. I've made mistakes, uh, but that's how I think about it. So you have to. Think for yourself, first of all, and the only way you can really do that is if you're not bound by your incentives and the, the, your paymasters. Yeah. You know, if you work for an organization, like remember all those conservative newspapers that are like, uh, organizations were like, oh, Trump's terrible, Trump's terrible, and then they switch like Trump's great. You know, wh- as soon as he won, fucking hypocrite. How could yeah. you do that? How do, right. how do you look at that and then look at that and not realize that you just expose yourself as a right? And there's also this weird badge of honor that you're a never Trumper. That you're a never Trumper Republican. Right. Like, what does that even mean? Like, there are a lot of, if you read the book, there's a ton of stuff that the Trump administration did right on China. Okay. Yeah. Not Trump, really, to be honest, because he was kind of a, uh, what's the correct word? Uh, um, moron, I guess is the word I'm certain. In other words, that he, <laughs> I, I, I don't, not to be too unfair to him, uh, uh, a fool? And like, there's a there's a story in there about how the coronavirus is like is like the news is coming out, and you know people like Pottinger, the guy I told you about, and other people are like, hey Trump, listen, this is bad. We got to get on top of this. Is not you know, and tr- Trump's like, well, okay, let me talk to Mick Mulvaney. Mulvaney's like, no, it's gonna be fine. Don't worry about it. And he's like, okay, I've got two competing sets of advice, and he talks to his good friend Xi Jinping, and Xi Jinping, mm. what does he tell him? February sixth, March twenty sixth, two calls, exclusively reported in Chaos Under Heaven. Uh, where he says, hey, listen, Trump, it's going to be fine. It goes away during warm weather. Uh, uh, herbal medicine will treat it. We've got it under control. All lies coming from the Chinese president to the American president directly. And two days later, Trump is saying, oh, yeah, don't worry. It's going to be fine. Many people are saying it's going to go away in warm weather. He didn't say that many people were saying was his good friend Xi Jinping, right? He believed Xi Jinping. That had a horrible effect on our policy and on the health and safety of millions of Americans. But that's what happened. That's not a good story for Trump. At the same time, I'm prepared to argue that there are lots of things that the Trump administration did to reset our conversation on China that the Biden administration is continuing for a very good reason because they make perfect sense. right? So what we're missing from our conversation is nuance. And yes, constructive disagreement is a huge part of that. But I don't know. I don't know enough about American universities on how to solve that. But I do see um, something inspiring, actually, 
uh, which is that when I, I, I started speaking to a lot of these uh, college students about these issues, and you know what I found, which surprised me actually, is that they get this, okay? And, and you know, we, we like, I'm, I'm 42 years old. You know, like, I'm not, I, I don't have my finger on the pulse of what's going on inside the Generation Z community, admittedly. But I, I've talked to enough of these students who say, no, 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 we, we understand that, that genocide against Uyghur Muslims is bad and we can't stand for it. And that- that's probably the biggest, that's the biggest, uh, that's, that's an as issue. It ought to be. Yes, as it ought to be. But that's the issue that really gets people concerned with what is actually happening over there. Good. Because they di- they, there's a lot of people that weren't aware of that. Right. And then they see some of the, the, the stories that are coming out about these people being shipped off into camps. They don't know where they're going. And they're like, wait a minute, what is happening here? Are we, are we on right. the wrong side of history with this? In our urge to not appear racist and to not criticize right. China because of that, we might be allowing this to happen right. by being silent well the whole world is allowing it allowing it to happen has been allowing it to happen and it's still happening to this day it's what is the motive right what is their motivation for doing this to these people to destroy the uyghur national cultural religious identity and these are muslims that are in china there are some of the Muslims. Now, keep in mind... Uyghur Muslims is what they're targeting specifically, though, no? So, in this, I mean, in this region of China, it was a very resource-rich region that has been ruled by different elements of Chinese leadership over the course of hundreds of years. There resides a, a rich tapestry of ethnic minorities. Now, the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang are the largest of, the, like, let's say, 12 million out of 20 million people in this particular province, right? And... Uh, um, you know what? What started and uh, years, many years ago, was uh, slow but steady encroachment upon their rights and their freedoms. Okay, and then this c- took its form in a number of different ways. But what that what really made it sinister was not the camps. Actually, it was the mass surveillance, monitoring, and persecution that happens before you get to the camp. Before you even knew there was something called a concentration camp in Xinjiang, you know that every move of your life is monitored. They took the technology, the AI and the facial recognition, which was developed in part with American tech companies quite willingly, and then funded by Wall Street, by the way, American investor dollars, building, funneling to the companies that are building the cameras that sit atop the, 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 the streets that, are, that can spot a Uyghur by their facial recognition so that the police can come down and tell you what's what. And these people were living in an open-air prison before there were ever concentration camps. Now... Then the destruction of hundreds of mosques, then all of a sudden, all of the journalists and leaders and thinkers and musicians and artists and political leaders disappeared, right? That was, that was before the camps. And there were a lot of people like, wait a minute, this is pretty fucked up. Uh, then they, they don't know what happened to those people. They don't know if well, they were imprisoned or murdered. They have no idea, right? Some of them were confirmed to be murdered. Some of them are still in prison. Some of them, are, most of them, you have no idea where they are. I gotta relight this. Um, anyway, so then the camps. Then they came up, came up with these camps, which are like, I mean, listen, I get that there's like there were a couple of terrorist incidents, but imagine if, you know, we had a couple of terrorist incidents here. And I'm not saying we treated Muslims well after 9/11. We did not. I have many Muslim American friends who were treated horribly and continue to be actually, uh, and that's a stain on our country and our society. But we didn't build uh, indoctrination camps and put two million Muslims in them. You know, yes, did we do that with the Japanese in a sense? Sure, yeah, but I'm, I'm, let's just deal with this for one second. And, you know, there's now there's a ton of just like really horrendous, pernicious genocide denialism 
And that's what the Chinese are pumping out right now, the Chinese Communist Party, rather. Uh, no, these are wonderful centers. Look at this video of these people singing a wonderful song. They're very happy here. Everybody loves it. And uh, it's all bullshit. And, uh, you know, what I did in the course of writing the book is what I interviewed a bunch of survivors. Okay? Because whatever statistic you have, and I, the legal definition of genocide is a, a, a determined thing. And it says that, you know, uh, the intent to destroy a, a, people, a group of people in whole or in part. Okay? And now there's two key things in there. One is the destroying in whole or in part, and the other is the intent. So what a lot of people will say is, well, we don't know their intent. Maybe they're just put fucking with the Uyghurs because they fuck with everybody, you know, or maybe they're, that's just like now concentration camps are the way that Chinese do business, and that's horrible, but it's not genocide. But setting the legal definition aside, what I decided to do is interview a bunch of the survivors, and their stories are true. They're not lying, okay? And their scars are real. They didn't invent their scars that they showed me. And their stories are harrowing. And just for a couple examples, just to paint the picture, every, you know, we have this thing called Radio Free Asia, where you have like people broadcasting uh, uh, news in other languages. It's paid for by the US government. It's a little bit controversial, but basically a lot of journalists, you know, trying to do their best to report news to other people around the world. Some in Europe, this was used during the Cold War. You know, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty were a key part of like, convincing the East Germans that they had a better life awaiting for them if they could just throw off the dictatorship. Anyway, skip ahead 50 years. The 26 journalists, Americans, mostly Americans, who work for Radio Free Asia in Washington doing reporting on this, they were some of the first to break the news of the camps. Some of it we saw from satellites. They're built, all of a sudden there's a grass field, then there's a huge camp, right? Looks like a prison, acts like prison, walks like a prison. It's a prison. And these journalists, 26 of them, every single one of them, all their family members were scooped up and put in the camps. All of them. Americans. Their, fa their fathers, their mothers, their aunts and uncles disappeared. They never heard from them again for the crime of reporting on the camps. Okay? So that's one thing. They target anyone who, will, who, who refuses to shut up about it. Then I met this uh, young woman named Vera Zhou. And Vera Zhou was a 20-year-old. She's not even Uyghur, actually. She's Hui Muslim. And she was a student in Seattle at University of Washington. And she goes home to visit her dad in Xinjiang, and she logs on to her VPN to file her homework for college. You know, they have like a University of Washington virtual private network. Three hours later, we're going to need you to come downtown. What? What happened? Just come with us. Three hours later, she was in handcuffs. Eight hours after that, she was in a camp. Okay. So a, an American resident, Chinese national, 20-year-old young woman, sophomore in college, never heard a fly, not a terrorist, not even a dissident, just trying to go to college, trying to do her homework. She spent five months in the camp. The story is awful. Uh, but then that was only the beginning of her nightmare because then she got let out of the camp for, some, for a, a, an interesting reason, and she couldn't leave China. So she was stuck. They wouldn't give her her passport back. She spent another two years in China uh, waiting for them to get her passport back. They finally gave it to her. She came back to Seattle. Uh, her credit was fucked. She lost her apartment. She had been de-enrolled de from her school because she didn't, you know, pay her bills or attend the classes while she was in the camp. And the University of Washington didn't lift a finger to help her. And her whole life was fucked up, you know, for the simple crime of pressing click on the VPN once. That's a capricious form of uh, abuse, you know. And, you know, that's not even getting into, you know, the 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 next stage. So then you you've got the the open air prison that is Xinjiang. Then you've got the camps. But then oh, but wait, you get out of the camp, 
your nightmare is just beginning because now you got to go to the factory. What factory? Shut up. Just get in the car. We'll, we'll take you to the factory. Now you're picking cotton or sewing together Nikes. You know, you can leave the factory, but you can't go home. You know, oh, we're going to pay you so you're not a slave, but you don't have a choice. You, get a, you better show up at that fucking factory. And that's your life now. What about my kids? Well, what do you mean, what about your kids? Well, when I went into the camp, I had a newborn baby. Well, that, you know, we had no choice. We had to send that kid to an orphanage somewhere, and you'll never see him again. Sometimes, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Some of the people got their kids back, some didn't, right? And then I, I, there was another woman uh, who I interviewed who said when she was finally let out of the camp, uh, you know, they were like, oh, we have to give you a medical check. And they uh, put her under, and then when she woke up, they are like, okay, you can go now. They would given her a hysterectomy. Okay, so Holy shit. this is mass force sterilization and mass force abortion, all these things. Okay, now people will quibble about the data. I'm saying I've talked to humans who this happened to. They're not lying. I looked into their eyes. They're not lying. And there are many, many stories. And that's the thing about all. I mean, it's the same. I I hate to use this analogy because it's like God wins law. But like when you think about the Chinese government. Sending a, a this is a real example a, a boat with seventeen thousand tons of human hair, seventeen thousand tons of human hair from Xinjiang, okay, and you know do, do you think that hair was given over willingly by those Uyghur women? Do you think they were properly con- co- uh, compensated for that hair? Because the ones I talked to said they didn't, they didn't get a dime for the hair that was shaved off their head that got put on a boat and sent to California, and you know. When the Trump administration, again, something I, they did right, had the audacity to say, no, we're not going to take that human hair and we're not going to put it on. It's not really an issue for you, by the way. But like <laughs> most people didn't want to put once they know that the hair is was shaved off of the concentration camp victims heads. They don't want to put it on their heads. You know what I mean? That's because in essence, hum, Americans are, are, are good people. Once they're aware of these atrocities, they don't want to be complicit in them. And we turned back that boat that had the 17,000 tons of human hair and then the Communist Party went crazy and punished the companies and, oh, sanctions, you Cold War, crazy, hawk Pompeo Americans, what are you doing to us? You guys are all racist. That's what we're dealing with. We're, de- we're dealing with, do you want to put the concentration camp hair on your head? Do you want to put the forced slave labor cotton on your back? You know, and, and to be honest, like most Americans d- had no idea, right? And they're like, okay, well, now that I know that, you know, and then some of them, after they're learning, they still won't care. Some of them will say, that's not my problem. That happens over there. That's not over here. But what I'm saying is that if you, again, if you, if you believe in sort of the idea of human dignity, you know, the, the path of the enlightenment, liberty and uh, democracy and human rights, and, and people can choose what they want to do and choose who they want to worship and choose who they want to love. These are the things more than geopolitics matter to human beings at their core than these things, the, these actions can only be described with one word, and that word is evil. Okay, and that word evil is a big word, and it deserves some justification. It deserves some explanation. At the same time, it's kind of a word that we can't live without for some reason, because when we see it, it's so clear and it's so stark that we have to call it out. How far does this extend in terms of businesses? Like so much of oh what we buy today is manufactured in China, including Apple products. Well, that's one thing. So a lot of these companies are realizing that they've become corporate hostages of the CCP, and that's a tough uh, calculation for Apple. I don't. Again, I don't. I'm not uh, insensitive to this, the 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 bind that they're in. Yeah. Okay. And again, I don't. I'm, I don't think there's any easy solutions. But what most people, what everybody misses, actually is not 
that's one part of the problem. Forced technology transfer. You hear a lot about IP theft and trade subsidies and all the things that were part of the trade war, by the way, which was not, you know, a whole nother subject. But that's not really the, the, the way that we're supporting. That's not really the problem. The problem is that hundreds of millions of Americans are unwittingly funding all of these malign Chinese companies passively through their pensions and investments and indexes and other, you know, uh, Wall Street uh, mechanisms. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that the, the biggest transfer of power and wealth to these malign Chinese companies and to all Chinese companies comes from Wall Street, comes from American firms who have been drastically increasing their uh, uh, involvement, assistance, and holdings of these Chinese companies, including the ones that build the concentration camps and the cameras that sit atop the concentration camp walls and the companies that uh, sell the cotton, but also the companies that build the missiles that are pointed at us and the companies that are, are doing the spying of our cyber hacking. And if you just think of that just for one second, and this is there's like a chapter about this in my book, but this is like the bleeding edge. Now we're getting to the bleeding edge because we're getting to like the, the, the real... The real shit here, okay? And the real shit is that, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans, your pension, everything is you don't manage that. That's not like invested. That's most most people, I don't I don't know about you, but for me, I trust my pension to whoever's running that pension. Now, if you knew that that pension was increasing its holdings in these malign Chinese companies, you would think, oh, wait a minute, now I'm invested in the success of these companies. And of course, from the Chinese side, that's exactly what they want. They want to build a constituency inside of our society such that, you know, again, to put Americans to a, a choice between interests. Oh, wait, if we sanction Hickvision, this is a real example. They make the cameras that, like, you know, it's amazing. Their cameras are amazing, right? They're, they can search through a crowd and find the Uyghur. That's the Uyghur. Okay. But if you don't care about that, it's just a great camera. Uh, Wall Street is pumping money into that company, left, right, and center. Now, the U.S. government is sanctioning that company. But what's the point of sanctioning the company if Wall Street's going to come in and fund it times 10? It doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. But that just what I've just said there is also like too hot for TV. People can't wrap their minds around it because they're still trying to figure out, you know, about the IP theft and the trade subsidies or whatever other bullshit that we've been talking about for the last 20 years. But these Wall Street firms, rather than wake up to the sort of, uh, you know, challenge that we're in and have an honest discussion about how to mitigate the risks. Again, we don't want to decouple. We don't want to say we can't invest in China. We need to do business in China. We should do business in China. Uh, at the same time, there's got to be some limits. There's got to be some points where we say, okay, well, maybe the company that builds the cameras that sit atop the concentration camp walls, maybe that's one we shouldn't, uh, you know, uh, pour Americans' money into. And by the way, once 100 million Americans are invested in that company, it's going to make it a lot harder to sanction that company because they're they're going to have a constituency. You know, they're they're tying our financial interests to their political interests. Again, it's not for the benefit of China; it's for the benefit of the party who wants to uh, do a genocide against Muslims. That's not really a economic interest. That's the party doing its evil shit. Jesus Christ! That's interesting, right? It's not. It's terrifying. Yeah, because it seems like it's impossible to decouple. We shouldn't decouple. We just have to figure out what where the lines are. And you know, the 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 the, the big sort of reveal is that this effort to sort of change China was is not going to work. It wasn't going to work. It shouldn't be our job. It's hubristic, right? All of the you know the restraint crowd people, all of the libertarians out there who are like, oh, this is just another you know scam to 
have the military industrial complex have an excuse for endless defense budgets. Now we're going to have the new Cold War with China. That's going to be the thing we're going to spend all of our trillions on to replace the, you know, Afghanistan, right? That's I hear that a lot. I get that a lot. But what I'm trying to say is I get that. Uh, but here's what I would say is that, you know, the competition with China is really not a military competition, okay? It, so, yes, we're going to need some military stuff, but don't get too concerned. I mean, be concerned about the, the horrendous abuses of the military-industrial complex, which are real, but that's not the point of the China competition. It's an economic, ideological, and technological competition foremost. And the real uh, uh, action is really in the markets. It's really in the capital markets. And Wall Street doesn't want to talk about that for very obvious reasons, because they're getting rich. Okay, and mm. the Wall Street, the press that covers Wall Street doesn't understand geopolitics, and the political press doesn't understand Wall Street, right? And all I did was try to try to connect those as much as I could in like half a chapter, which is incomplete to be sure. Um, but that doesn't get us to any way how how we deal with it. And what the Trump administration tried to do is they tried to order these Wall Street companies to divest, and these Wall Street companies were like, "Fuck you," you know. And that that's an unsettled question. But but I would just ask any listener or viewer out there. If you knew that your pension was tied to concentration camps, do you care? Does that bother you? Okay. Some people may say no. It's none of our business. But I say it bothers me. I don't want my pension being used to uh, build concentration camps. That's just me. So that's what I'm going to try to argue against and try to affect change in if I can. So far, it's not going very well. <laughs> so what, It's what, not. I'm, I'm sure. So what about products? Well, that's the other thing. Sort of like... Are you, are you, it's, a, it's what you said about the information hill. Like, people don't have time to climb that hill, right? right? So, like, does this shirt that I'm wearing, does this, does this involve some slave labor? Maybe. I don't know. And I, I spent all my time on this shit. I still don't know. You know what I mean? I'm wearing Adidas right now. Is that – there's some abuses in the product of those – probably. So what it's what not has a, Apple done? Has Apple done anything to try yeah. to mitigate this? And is it is it more morally sound to buy a Samsung product, or do they have the same sort of ties to China as well? Um, no company. No company that – that does manufacturing in China is immune from the pressures. So what Apple did was they moved their cloud servers for Chinese users inside China, essentially giving up on the privacy of those Chinese users. Uh, they erased a bunch of Hong Kong apps from the App Store at the Chinese Communist Party's demand because they were helping the Hong Kong protesters figure out like how to, you know, protest and you know against the uh, for freedom and democracy. And so they they just they so they're constantly kowtowing. And again. They're like the they're the prime example because they're fucked. They're they're in a hostage situation. One of the stories that hasn't even really broken out yet that nobody even really talks about is like when Apple wanted to change its privacy controls to give people with their iPhones actually more control over their data. All their Chinese partners decided to ignore that and build a workaround. In other words, you have ten major Chinese tech companies that are producing content and apps for for iPhones who are declining to. Follow Apple's rules. There's nothing Apple can do about it because if they protest, the Chinese Communist Party is going to literally, you know, shut down their profit-making ability, and that's a huge, huge, huge business. So it gets to your decoupling question, which is like, okay, if we can't change China, and we shouldn't try because it's hubristic to I think that they're going to become like us. China is going to develop in a way determined by the Chinese people, one way or the other. That's what four decades of U.S. military intervention failures should have taught us is that we can't change these countries, okay? But what we can do is we can put them to a choice. In other words, we can say, okay, if you're insistent on doing this bad behavior, we're going to act accordingly and change our behavior to respond. And that could be a mix of increasing the cost of the bad behavior. That's what tariffs are about. People will say tariffs are about lots of different things. They're really about imposing a cost on the Chinese industry so that it's harder for them to do business the wrong way. 
And then we're going to take measures to protect ourselves, which means some decoupling. It means we don't have to have everything here, but we better have some masks. You know what I mean? How about masks? Okay, well, nobody thought before 2019, what's the difference? We don't need mask factories. Why would you build a mask factory? It's a thousand times cheaper to do in China. Now you don't have to make that argument. Everybody knows we're going to need our own fucking masks, right? Why? Because there's going to be another pandemic and we don't want to have to bow and scrape and, and, and promise to shut up about uh, Hong Kong and just to get our masks. And the so manufacture of medicines. Medicines, high technologies, uh, semiconductors, components, stuff like that. 5G. There's an issue right now with uh, chips, with yes. chips for trucks and cars. and All of that. Yeah, yeah we, we don't produce, we don't produce uh, you know, semiconductors. Okay, well, that's what should we do about it? Well, let's have that discussion. We could, have, we could build our own semiconductor fa- foundries. That's one idea. We could fund them with the government. That's another idea. We could make partnerships with the Taiwanese companies. That's complicated. Okay, that's another good idea. These are all good ideas. None of them are actually progressing because we're all, you know, talking past each other and, you know, trying to like, you know, talking about like, you know, whether or not it's okay to say Wuhan virus. You know what I mean? That's the level right. of our discussion. So the, just this, as far as we've gotten in this time, it's way farther than I've ever gotten in my entire life talking about this stuff, to be honest with you. Because it takes three hours to get to the point, which is that, okay, we have a complex problem and good-meaning people who may disagree have to come together and come up with complex complex solutions. And all those solutions are imperfect, and they all require trade-offs. And if we get out of Afghanistan, that should give us a little bit more attention to focus on this. And maybe we don't need to have $80 billion of intelligence community shit pointed at jihadis in Yemen. We could take some of that and point it at some of these labs because – Guess what? That's the sh- that, that's actually also very important, and our because Washington is so broken after Trump, really broken. I mean, I've been there for 24 years, and it's always been sort of this like functional dis- what I call functional dysfunction. Nothing worked the way it was supposed to, and uh, but it kind of all muddled along. Budgets got done, and everybody was kind of equally unhappy but equally happy. Trump smashed that right. He flipped over the chessboard, okay, and you could say that that needed to be done, but what he failed to do is set it back up again. Mm. Yeah, that's what the Biden administration is charged with doing. And I think they're making an honest effort to do that, but they're also caught by their own politics and their own bureaucracy and their own infighting and their own bullshit, which is natural. But, you know, the reason that we like the, 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 the dichotomy of the book is that we had this awakening in American society to the challenge of a rising China. And but the first inning was played by the Trump administration. And because they were such a mess, so it's called chaos under heaven. Uh, they fucked a lot of it up. Now, when when you say they fucked everything up, and no, they, no, not everything, just some of it. Okay, they fucked it up and they broke it. Like how how so? How'd they break it? Like what what specifically fucked up the system that wasn't immediately reparable upon removing him from office? Okay, so just take a look at the trade war, right? So Donald Trump, I re- I read every book that he uh, professes to have written, and a ton of them mention China, right? And a lot of them say the same exact thing is that we got a problem here. The Chinese government uh, has been taking advantage of our economy and it needs to stop. And, if, uh, and that's what he said in the campaign trail. He was determined to do that. Okay. And, you know, I understand the trade war is very unpopular. And even amongst Republicans, the idea of tariffs and all of this, you know, trade stuff was like an anathema to like their, their core ideological belief system. Okay, I get that. But what you saw actually inside the government underneath was a, a genuine effort to find ways to convince the Chinese government to do something different, okay? But the problem was that Trump was such a bad ta- tactician, 
right? He had this vision of like fixing the thing, but he he varied between different ways to do it. That he, that he kept handing the trade issue. First, he handed it to Wilbur Ross, then Jerry Kushner, then Steve Mnuchin, then Lighthizer, and then Navarro, and then you know, and it was just such a disaster policy and 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 bureaucracy wise that it had no chance of achieving its own aims. So he took this big shot at fixing the trade relationship. He didn't get shit. The the phase one deal. Is meaningless. What's fifty billion dollars worth of soybean sales when you have a six trillion dollar pandemic and a six hundred billion dollar IP theft? You know what I mean? It's it's crazy. It's it's piddly. It matters to those soybean salesmen. Those guys are very happy, but it didn't actually solve any of the problems. And so that was a big missed opportunity right there. Right. Same thing with like uh, you remember? Did you follow this TikTok WeChat ban yes. thing? Yeah. That was a crazy one because you know. Again, once Trump realized that Xi Jinping had lied to him, his good friend Xi Jinping, who had chocolate cake, remember with that chocolate cake that we had at Mar-a-Lago, the most beautiful chocolate cake you ever saw in your life, and uh, he really thought they were really good friends, you know, and so he, he, like, you know, once he realized that that was all bullshit and that actually they weren't friends, uh, he turned on Xi Jinping and he unleashed his national security people to do whatever they wanted. And the first thing they're like, we're going to ban TikTok. Which is a weird hill to die on if you think about it, because it's TikTok. Like I get it. Like I don't. I don't have it because I don't want. I, I think there's there's definitely some risk there. We don't know how much, uh, but probably not the number one issue in U.S.-China relations that we need to address. But anyway, they issued an executive order banning TikTok. Okay, well that's a pretty serious thing. We're now banning Chinese tech companies. You know. Okay, well that's kind of interesting. We should do that pretty carefully. So he does that, but then he hands the negotiation over to Mnuchin, who switches the priority from banning TikTok to saving TikTok. And he tries to make a deal with Oracle and the Chinese company to IPO TikTok to make everybody rich. He takes it back from the national security people. And then the Chinese government was like, no, fuck you. We're not doing that. We're not handing you TikTok. That's our golden goose. You can't have it. And the whole thing, and then they sued us in American courts and the whole thing got kaflooey. So that's a, a good example of where they took a very serious issue and then Totally screwed it up because of their own incompetence and the desire to make a profit. Well, the national security people and the and the Wall Street people inside the administration fought each other and and canceled each other out. They they nullified their own and both of them lost. And you know, TikTok is. What do you What do you think about the Huawei ban? Uh, so that's interesting. So again, so, so the, for those people who don't know, Huawei is like the you know the biggest Chinese telecom company there is. They're all over the world. And the Trump administration went around the world saying, you can't, hey, you know, you know, African country, South American country, you better not do Huawei. Why not? Well, it's a huge security vulnerability. Okay, well, uh, what do you have to offer us in its place? Well, nothing. Oh, okay, well, then fuck you. And then, you know, the Chinese come in, they're like, hey, uh, they don't come in and say, hey, would you like to buy Huawei? They say, hey, would you like to uh, uh, get rich? And would you like to have your dictatorship absolved of any war crimes in the uh, UN, and uh, we're going to build you a house and a soccer stadium, and then we're going to give everybody in your country phones and for free, and then we're going to give you a 5G technology that's going to make your economy go whiz, whiz, whiz at 30 cents on the dollar, and uh, that's it. You have, you know, happy birthday. And these dictators are like, yes, please, I'll take that. That sounds good to me. You know? And then here comes like Mike Pompeo. is like, oh, you better not do that. You know, USA is going to be very angry with you. And they're like, okay, well... We care about that too, but we're going to take all of the money and corruption and all this shit that the Chinese are offering us. So it's a it's a it's a great example of sort of. And then of course Trump changes mind about it all the time. 
So it's, it's another great example of how they took this important issue and they brought it up to the fore, rightly, drew a circle around it, rightly, because it is a risk, uh, but then bungled it in the execution. And uh, so now it's just like a mess that the Biden administration has to clean up. And the significant, the, 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 there really is a significant Here's one more thing, risk. sorry. Oh, please go. So there's like, I could, there's a million examples, but like, this is what you have to understand about the CCP is that it's never just one thing. For them, it's all connected, okay? It's all connected on their side. So they go into a country in like uh, China Mobile. We'll go, this is a real example. They went to uh, Ethiopia and to Addis Ababa, and they, you know, every you want telecom infrastructure. Here you go, t- thirty cents on the dollar. It's, the technology is great, by the way. Don't let them tell you that the Chinese tech is crap. It's not. It's amazing. They've done amazing things with engineering, and they're very very skilled engineers. And uh, oh, so all these people get their phones. <laughs> And they're like, all the phones, you know, these people never had landlines, and all of a sudden they all got cool cell phones, and cell phones are loaded with a game. And what's that game? Oh, well, the game is, uh, you know, poker, virtual poker. Okay, well, oh, there's $100 on here. Oh, I'm going to start playing virtual poker. So they all start playing virtual poker. Of course, they all lose a bunch of money, and then all of a sudden, knock on the door comes, it's the, the local Chinese gang come to collect. Okay, now what does that tell you? Well, does, I don't know. Tells you that the Chinese telecom companies are working with Chinese gangs who are working with the Chinese government. So they work with in Hong Kong. So they come to collect because you lost money. So you don't lose. You don't have it connected to a credit card. Once they connect it, once they are bought in, and once there's a debt to be paid, that debt is collected by a different Chinese organization. That's not a company. That's not. A, it's a criminal organization. No. What I'm trying to get to here is that the CCP works with the actual Chinese gangs in Hong Kong. The triads, which are like the Chinese gangs, beat up the protesters, right? Why are they doing that? Why are the Chinese gangs acting on behalf of the CCP to beat up Hong Kong protesters? It's because they're working together. The the Chinese Communist Party and the actual criminal gangs are as close as lips and teeth, as Mao would say. Are you? Am I getting? Yeah. What I'm trying to get to here is that this is a complex problem because on their side they're mixing all of these things. Industry, politics, criminality, diplomacy, bribery, corruption, development, all of those things are part of their strategy, which is very organized and marching apace. And we don't think about it that way. We're attacking different tentacles of the problem. But until you realize that actually it's all one big problem and it's all connected, then you can't think about the ways to respond appropriately. Well, it's organized and inexorably connected to the party. Exactly. So there is no business without the party. Exactly. And so we are at a significant disadvantage. Correct. And there's no acknowledgement of it nor solution. I mean, there's some acknowledgement of it, but the solutions are, I, I haven't seen that. But even the Huawei ban, yeah. I mean, the Huawei's just been banned in the United States and they're not allowed to use Google, but what that's allowed them to do is start their own, I mean, sure. it's, it might be even worse, they start their own ecosystem. Right. And their, it's own, inevitable. and their own ecosystem, I'm sure, is like way more porous and susceptible to, right. yeah. So you got to go to these countries. If, if we were smart, what we would do is we'd go to these countries and say, listen, uh, do you like your cell phones with spying or without spying? Now, I know it, a lot of the listeners are going to, doesn't the NSA spy on, on all our shit too? Yes, we spy. Yes, we're guilty of this stuff too. I'm not, I'm not excusing the U.S. government's abuses. Okay, and believe me, I spent years and years reporting on the U.S. government's abuses. Just because I am a Washington guy who like reports the Washington Post, I'm against U.S. government abuses. Okay, so 
Again, two ideas in our head at the same time. The U.S. government can abuse its spying powers, and the Chinese government can abuse its spying powers. But basically, what it's not the same. And, and if you build a, 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 an AT&T or a Verizon network, or if you build a Huawei network, those two things are not the same. Okay, and th- both of them have vulnerabilities, but I'd rather have the the, the non Huawei network. But these countries would also rather have it because they know that once they get bought in, once they take the bribe, once they take the corruption, once they take the package, that's it. They're sold. You know, there's no going back. You know, you can't untangle yourself from that. They would many in many cases prefer to work with us if we had something to offer. In other words, we can't just bash China. That's not productive. We have to have an alternative that's based on our values. That's based on Rule of law and you know free commerce and you know you know uh, companies that you know are less susceptible to government spying and we're not doing that. But if we if we had a a more proactive, more aggressive, you know counter, that would be that would help. That would help a lot. But it seems like there were so many steps behind. They didn't anticipate any of this. Some people did, but those people were ignored for many, many years. And the Trump administration, in a way, was a chance for those people to have their voices heard. And that's why you saw so much, so much change in U.S.-China policy that you did. Unfortunately, those people also had to deal with Donald Trump, and so that's why it got all screwed up. Again, I think the Biden administration, to their credit, is thinking about these things very hard. You know, They want to understand what are the things that the Trump administration did that were good and what were bad, but they're taking a while, you know, and... The Chinese Communist Party is not waiting. They're actually speeding up their plans. If you look around the world, what did they do during the coronavirus pandemic? They invaded part of India. It's a pretty fucked up thing to do. It backfired, right, because the Indians are now more anti-CCP than they ever were. Uh, They're aggressive against Taiwan. They they did horrible things in Hong Kong. I mean, horrible things. And uh, they increased the repression of the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, by the way, and the Inner Mongolians and anyone else who didn't shut up and... So they're they're speeding up now that we're sort of attuned to it more. Uh, they're speeding up their plans, and our response has to speed up as well. What? This is a this is such a fucked up subject because kind of yeah. I, what I'm looking at, if you're watching this play out, I don't see like a a real good way out of this. Well, I don't see a way where they don't have some pretty significant influence on us, even more so than what they have now over the next decade or two. How does this end? How does this end? Yeah. I don't know. But you have to be pretty fucking, I mean, having written this book and having researched this for that long, you got to be pretty concerned. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I spent a lot of time on this, but there are a lot of people, how does this end is a, is a really interesting question because again, you know, there are some people who say we have to bring down the CCP right now, like Steve Bannon, you know, and Peter Navarro and these guys. And they're, they're like, OK, well, listen, if this is the reality, then we got to bring those guys down right now. How I don't that think that's possible. It's not. And it, we shouldn't try. And but this is what some people will say. Uh, and what I say is that uh, we have to figure out a way to have a relationship between the rest of the world and China that both sides can live with to avoid the conflict that neither side wants. In other words, people think the Cold War is the worst scenario. No, it's not. Cold War is not a good scenario. Hot War is the worst scenario. Exactly. Thank you. That's the worst scenario. So the question is, how do we how do we avoid that? Because that's actually the worst thing. And I argue, and many people like me argue, that the best way to avoid it is by confronting this problem now, by addressing it now, that the more we let it fester, that the more the powerful and evil and expansionist and aggressive and repressive the CCP gets. And guess what? It's all going in that direction. But according to all of the evidence and everything we see, the more dangerous the situation becomes because their appetite grows with the eating. 
Okay. And the more mm. powerful they get, the more they tell us to go fuck ourselves. And once and so the, the, we have a limited amount of time to prove to them that we actually do desire a world where they can have their country. It doesn't mean we're going to shut up about their atrocities, but it means that what we're concerned most about is what their actions are in our countries. That the real fight against the CCP and the competition with China begins inside of our own borders, in our schools, in our markets, in our Silicon Valley tech companies, in our sports, and in our movies. And that's where we have to focus the most of our efforts. Then we have to join with our allies and partners, specifically in the region, who are facing the same problem that we are. And so that's how this ends, is that, you know, in the best case scenario, is that we, we, we convince the Chinese Communist Party to limit its ambitions such that we can all live together and avoid the hot war. But ignoring the problem is not a strategy. And History shows us that when you face expansionist, totalitarian, pseudo-religious dictatorships, inevitably they keep expanding and they keep uh, uh, gaining until confronted. What's the worst case scenario? The hot war. Okay, outside of the hot war, is there another scenario that you could see that also would be similarly worst case in terms of like what yeah, they've they, done to they, Hong Kong? They change the world to be safe for autocracy and repression. In other words, they compromise us and are so powerful that we can't stand up to them. That we live in a that we lose our what Christopher Hitchens would call our our way of life. That's what I'm concerned with. I'm that concerned with we, live that we in a society become where, them to confront. That's them. a terrible scenario too. That's also but that's a that's a scenario that's likely. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, uh, let's, hope, let's hope not. But yes, when you see, that's why we, we have to stand up against things like self-censorship in our own society. That's yes. when, when Daryl Morey tweets something, everybody who believes in the enlightenment and individual liberty and the path of human dignity has a responsibility to say, no, fuck you, we can tweet whatever we want. You know, And, and they have to learn that we're going to tweet whatever we want, whether they like it or not. And they can't tell us not to because that's the slippery slope where we're, we're OK. Well, we can't have a China studies program that talks about Tibet or I mean, it already happened in Hollywood. When's the last time we saw a Hollywood movie about Tibet? It's been about 20 years, 20 years. I haven't seen one. What's Richard Gere doing? He's the guy's out of work. Right. You know, there's, there's, there's a reason. So are we going to let and there will become a tipping point where we're so invested in these Chinese companies that sinking them, even if they're committing atrocities, We'll sink our own economy so that we have to figure out what we have to protect, where we have to decouple and where we don't, you know, and there are plenty of places where we don't, you know, that's that's fine. We should encourage interactions and we should keep encouraging, you know, our our our, our shared essential oneness. You know, like there's there's something just true about the fact that we're all humans share some sort of commonality, even people in China. There was there was you, are you on Clubhouse at all? Do you ever do Clubhouse? I did it once. I thought it was ridiculous. You didn't like it? No, it's a podcast for people that don't have a podcast. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's why but I like it. People I don't have a podcast with podcasts that jump on there. And yeah. I'm like, when do you talk to your kids? That's true. But you know, yeah. I I found it to be a, a a refuge during the quarantine because I could connect with people that I couldn't meet with. Oh, that makes sense. So yeah. for me, it, it was it was a, a pressure release valve. But the point is, this is crazy. For like six weeks. It wasn't banned in China, and there were thousands of people from man mainland China on the app talking with Tibetans and Ai Weiwei and uh, Hong Kongers and dissidents and Americans and in Chinese. Mm. And what I witnessed is that they actually actually were not all that different. You know, actually these people want the same things that we want, and they are not stupid. They're not uh, 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 they're not brainwashed. They they understand their government. They know what they're dealing with. They have they they might think about it differently than us. They're not as critical of us. They don't know everything. There was this one woman who didn't know about 
the Xinjiang concentration camps, but she learned about Were it. Were you speaking to her in Chinese? She was in English. I was in the English room, so I don't speak Chinese. Okay, you only speak Japanese. No, but there were a lot of my friends who were Chinese speakers were in these other rooms, and they were we were having this crazy uh, uh, community of people who were coming together, and uh, then the Chinese Communist Party shut it down. and So they shut it down in China, and you can't even get it through a VPN? Uh, there are some people who have found out tricky ways to get through the firewall, but they do so at great risk because what we then found out is that Clubhouse is built on uh, Chinese tech. Of course it is. It's not encrypted. Fuck. And their servers are all from a Chinese company. Oh, Jesus. And uh, those people may have gotten scooped up, and I pray for them, even though I, I'm not religious. but Really? Yeah, we're pretty sure that, that – you know, all the conversations could have been monitored. All those people were put it, and then when they shut down the app, all these the people who were still left were like, "Oh my God, Clubhouse! What have we done? We just, we just, the, we might have just gotten ourselves, you know, our, ruined our whole lives." And you know, Clubhouse didn't do shit, as far as I can tell. Well, there's it's still an invite only app that's in kind of a beta form, right? Anybody can get an invite. You, I can get twenty invites right now. It's not it's not as exclusive. Well, anybody as like you. No, no, no. Any, I'm telling you, it's a false exclusivity. It was early oh, on, but now okay. it's like basically anybody can join. Um, but my point is that if you engage with Chinese people, good things happen. And we need to somehow preserve that engagement without succumbing to the party's rules and edicts and doctrines. And that, again, is a very difficult thing that I, I'm not prepared to like give you the, the, the perfect solution for at this moment. Dude, you freak me the fuck out. This is Mission a accomplished. super uncomfortable conversation. I thought it was really productive. I felt it, good about it. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot off my chest. Well, I, I know you did, and you, it really was very productive in a lot of ways. But it's, it's also and I very... settled my score with Dan Ninen, which I've been waiting a decade ah! to do. You have no idea. That's well, what... Dan Ninen in some way introduced us. That's how I found out about you. Like when when you know you were pitched to be on the podcast. I'm like, oh, that guy. Yeah, I remember that story. All yeah, right. and then I read all the rest, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, okay." Well, Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, maybe. Fuck, man. Um, anyway, another reason to drink. Yeah, salute. Cheers. Cheers, man. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How long did we go? How long? <sighs> was it? It's like three hours. Jesus. Yeah, but I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna sleep yeah. well. This is a fucking reoccurring problem can i can i leave on a note of optimism then in order yeah. to cheer you up a little bit sure you have optimism yeah okay the, uh you know the this struggle for human dignity and and individual liberty is uh is universal it dates back to descartes and spinoza and thomas Paine and thomas jefferson and orwell and will continue in future generations in other words the, the long arc of history does bend towards justice and that you know, despite how bleak it looks now, in the in the end, people do want that those things. Our offer is better. People don't want to live on their knees. People don't want to be chattel of the party state. People want to think for themselves and love who they want. That's better. If you ask any person, even any Chinese person who doesn't have a minder standing over them, that's they'll choose that thing. Yes. So if we keep that idea in our mind, then we don't have to worry about if you're Republican or Democrat or American even. It doesn't even matter because this is a universal truth. That human dignity and individual liberty and rights are things that we all must strive for and that we all have a responsibility to advocate for. And that, if we keep focused on that mission, then we can take the politics out of this and we can join in our shared humanity and make some progress. That sounds awesome. But how do you get 
a country that's under the grip of a totalitarian party, under a regime that does have supreme control, under a regime that is more than willing to commit genocide and force people into slave labor, how do you convince them that that's not the way to go, especially when they have ultimate control and it's been insanely profitable and the, the power that they've amassed is unprecedented. In terms of like the ability to control what's kind of a capitalist society, it's kind of capitalist, right? It's not communist, but you know what I'm saying? It's not, it's not communist in a traditional sense where they, they've taken away all the incentive. They've allowed people like Jack Ma to get to be, amass billions of dollars. It's a weird sort of hybrid. It's, it's like a virus that's evolved. The only honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know either. To be continued. To be continued. The book's available right now, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's called, K and non-binary folks, Chaos Under Heaven, Josh Rogan. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you, man. Thank Let's you. have you in again. Let's do this more often. Anytime. All right? All right. Thank you. Bye, everybody.